everyone. This is James Lindsay. You are listening to the New Discourses podcast. And finally, after months of anticipation, after many times on Twitter of this blowing up, I want to talk to you about Hegel. I've been promising to talk about the Hegelian idea for a while. I've been tweeting about it. Something peculiar happens every time you tweet about Hegel and you get too close. For example, if you point out that wokeism is a Hegelian religion, especially if you point out that wokeism is a hermetic religion based in the dialectical philosophy of Hegel, something weird happens. People go berserk. You end up, or I end up, at least getting bombed by people in kind of a disproportionate fashion, and something very inorganic begins to happen in many of these cases. Of course, there's the usual making fun of me, but lots of very obviously leftist accounts kind of lose their mind, pop up on my radar, and what will happen is some stuff that's just not quite real, right? Something that's hyper real, in a sense. And that'll be that, you know, somebody will throw a dunk, and somebody will, with, with maybe just a few dozen followers, will reply to something, maybe in dunk fashion, and a reply tweet from an account that's not very big will somehow get hundreds of likes, sometimes in a very small amount of time. It's not organic behavior. There's something weird going on with Hegel. And this has driven me to want to understand more of Hegel. Hegel is, of course, relevant. Everybody who knows much about Marx knows that Hegel was relevant to Marx. And I want to make the case that Hegel is relevant to what's going on. And in fact, that we can understand the woke ideology or woke woke worldview is a better way to put it, the worldview of critical social justice, also known as theory, as a Hegelian faith. And so to begin, this is probably going to go pretty long because I want to do this in depth. I want to get it all there. I have copious notes for this. I want to just read to you something that might not stick out to you otherwise from Critical Race Theory and Introduction. This is by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk. It's a typical fundamental textbook in critical race theory, and um, I've quoted from it about a bajillion times. So I just want to read to you this paragraph in the section about essentialism and anti-essentialism. They write, Some observers hold that all minority races should compromise their differences and form a united front against racism in general. The danger in this essentialized approach is that certain minority groups, socioeconomic classes, and sexual orientations may end up better off and others worse. Recall how shabbily black women were treated in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, rarely allowed to speak for the group, made to march in the second row, and relegated with a few exceptions to support roles. It has only been relatively recently that black women and Latinas have emerged as, a power, as powerful voices on the American scene. Perhaps the essentialism slash anti-essentialism debate sets in when mainstream thought is beginning to see the validity in the larger group's complaints. Like an automobile with deferred maintenance, smaller subgroups that have until then remained silent begin bringing suppressed issues to the larger group's attention. And so the dialectic progresses. That's the end of the quote, but let's check that last part. And so the dialectic progresses. That word, dialectic, is not there by mistake. Neither is the idea that's, that's put forth with the dialectic that it's progressing. And in fact, neither is the idea that it's progressing into a smaller and more niche area. So what the argument here is that they're making in this last sentence 
is that as larger scale problems seem to be getting sorted out, smaller scale problems get brought up to the fore and have to be worked out as well, and so the dialectic progresses. None of this is there by mistake. So in this episode of the podcast, I want to convince you of two primary things. They're going to be kind of my north star, I suppose, in communicating this stuff to you. One, this idea of dialectic is important. In fact, it is the operating system of leftists, and it has been for almost 200 years. It's so important that if you don't understand this seemingly quirky word and where it comes from philosophically, you don't have the slightest idea of what's going on in leftist politics. Secondly, this dialectic is a method of worship in a broad religious movement that started primarily with Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel in the early 19th century. The Phenomenology of Spirit in 1807 is probably uh, a good bookmark to say when this started. So we're looking at 214 years since the publication of that book. His later writings extend uh, into the late 1820s. So we're looking at roughly 200 years ago. That broad Hegelian religion has denominations that include Marxism, Neo-Marxism, also known as critical theory or cultural Marxism, Fabianism, and wokeness. So I want to convince you of these two things. The dialectic is the operating system of leftism, and that leftism that's operating dialectically is in fact a religion that can be traced back to the metaphysics of Hegel. That's a tall order, but I think it's crucial if you want to understand what's going on with the woke, why it appears to be religious, why it has many of the features that it does. If you want to be able to anticipate the moves that it makes, if you want to be able to counter it, you have to understand it. Um, the Polish proverb is never attempt to cure that which you don't understand. So I want to make sure we understand that leftism, in particular, uh, this kind of radical leftism, that line of Marxism, neo-Marxism, Fabianism, wokeness that have really characterized leftism over the past 200 years, or at least 150 years, starting with Marxism, I guess, those are all species within a broader, or denominations within a broader religious movement that relies upon the dialectical approach laid out first in significance by Hegel. So the rough picture I want to paint, we could go back. The dialectic really finds its first expression in Kant. We're not going to talk about Kant. It was developed further by Fichte. We're also not going to talk about Fichte. And there Hegel picks up the story. So we're going to start with Hegel. Uh, if you want to know more about those other things, you can talk to my friend Stephen Hicks, or you can listen to his listen to or read his book. I listened to it, so I automatically went to the audiobook explaining postmodernism. He has some of the relevance of Hegel and Fichte and number of, a number of other thinkers that led up to before Hegel, but I'm going to begin with Hegel. And so what happened is that Hegel eventually died, but a movement, he was really an intellectual rock star at the time where he was in uh, Germany, and he, he a movement arose around him, or actually a few movements arose around his systematic philosophy, and the progressive one of these was known as the Young Hegelian Movement. The Young Hegelian Movement is what inspired Marx, and Marxism became the definition of basically everything leftism following Marx, but especially following the success of the Russian Revolution, foisted by Lenin. It also gave rise to neo-Marxism and approximately in a kind of 
odd and broken way postmodernism. And of course, my thesis in Cynical Theories, which I wrote with Helen Pluckrose, is that neo-Marxism and postmodernism fuse with a few other things that were going on to form what we now call woke. So we have this line, Hegel to the Young Hegelian Movement, to Marx via Feuerbach, to neo-Marxism and to some degree postmodernism in sort of a broken way, to woke. And we have this long thread running of this one religion that's taking different denominational forms as it's going through time. You could say that the woke are in some sense, you could say, in fact, in in some odd sense, the neo-Marxists are almost like it's Calvinists or even the woke are like it's Puritans. If you read something like Robin D'Angelo's Why Fragility and you're aware of what a Puritan confessional tract looks like where they're going through their humiliation after they believe that they've been saved, it's pretty obvious. Robin D'Angelo feels as though she has been saved in an anti-racist religion. She knows that racism is bad, that she feels like she's done the proper uh, atonement, that she should have received grace, but because it's a Puritan mindset that she's operating within, she's got scrupulosity probably, which is a form of OCD if I had to guess. Can't diagnose her for sure. She enters into this humiliation where she tries to repeatedly show that Uh, She's utterly depraved and therefore uh, going to be able to be worthy of justification and then eventually glorification. And so this is the mindset of the woke. You can see this as a a, a very religious way when you read Robin D'Angelo, if you're familiar with Puritan tracts. So the big idea, not there are lots of big ideas in Hegel, lots of things going on. I want to follow that particular track, Hegel to the Young Hegelian Movement, to Marx, to neo-Marxism and postmodernism in a broken way, to the woke. And so the one that I want to focus on centrally is this operating system that Hegel laid out in an applicative way in the, for the probably for the first time, which is the dialectic. Dialectic is thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Those are the words you usually hear. So you have some idea that's a thesis. You're met with its opposite. That's the antithesis. And you have to contemplate the two, figure out a way to bring them together into something that unifies the ideas. And that's a synthesis that's supposed to provide more information. A higher understanding is a better way to phrase that. I'm sorry, uh, of of the circumstance. So the thesis is a idea that has been forwarded. It misses something. Its antithesis reveals the contradictions from what it's missing, and its synthesis arrives out of this. So this can be traced back to Socratic thought. There are positive and negative versions of this. Uh, of note, I suppose we should say that Hegel never actually framed the dialectic. This way is thesis, antithesis, synthesis. That's Kant's organization. Hegel borrowed from Kant. His own formulation was actually abstract, negative, concrete. So you have an abstract idea, abstract understanding of something. It meets its negative, and that allows you to derive something concrete from it, which is clearly reflected in the neo-Marxist literature repeatedly if you've read it, because the neo-Marxist literature constantly calls for engaging in so-called negative thinking. And negative thinking is bringing that negative to bear, which is the critique, Marx's ruthless critique or criticism of everything that exists. That's bringing the negative to bear on the abstract so that you can synthesize it to the concrete, which is a concrete solution, which usually for them means something looking like communism. You can hear this verbiage, for example, just to pull one example out of Herbert Marcuse. I've read Herbert Marcuse's Repressive Tolerance essay before. I've read selections from his One Dimensional Man. We're going to cover some of both of those again in this episode. But in his 1969 essay on liberation, which I intend to read for the podcast in full with commentary uh, fairly soon, 
I have not read that one yet, but we incur, we encounter this paragraph. Marcuse writes, but the demand to state the concrete alternatives to, say, the failing states of the world, capitalist states particularly that he's looking at, but also the failures of attempted socialist and communist states. He says, but the demand to state the, conc- to state the concrete alternatives is justified for yet another reason. Negative thinking, there it is, draws whatever force it may have from its empirical basis, the actual human condition in the given society. So he's like, let's look at the lived experience. Let's look where suffering and oppression are. Let's tap into those. And we're going to use negative thinking to do so. And it's empirical because we're looking at the actual experiences people are having, the actual human condition. And then you're going to compare that, he writes, and the given possibilities to transcend this this condition to enlarge the realm of freedom. In this sense, negative thinking is by virtue of its own internal concepts positive. Negative thinking is positive. Isn't that odd? What he says that means is oriented toward and comprehending a future which is contained in the present. This containment idea is going to be very important also, that this perfect future that negative thinking can unleash is contained in the present. The the philosophy here, the metaphysic here is actually that if if we could just get the problems off of that contained future, then the contained future could emerge, right? So what we have here is somebody believing that there's this kind of perfect future. And if we could just get the problems off of it by using negative thinking, we could peel away all the problematics. We could expose all the contradictions. We could expose all of the systems of oppression that prevent it from being perfect. Then that seed that's contained within in the present day would be able to blossom into a fully liberated society. That's the essay on liberation, right? That's a very important way. We're going to come back to this again and again. It's a very important way to understand the way that these people think. And it's crucial to understand that this is a Hegelian approach. But to go back to um, Marcuse, he writes, And this containment, which is an important aspect of the general containment policy pursued by the established societies. No, sorry. And in this containment, the future appears as possible liberation. So that's what I was just saying. In the containment, Contained within the society, we see the seed of liberation, the seed of a new society that cannot and does not exist anywhere on earth up to this point. And he writes, it is not the only alternative, the advent of a long period of civilized barbarism, with or without the nuclear destruction, is equally contained in the present. So there could be good roads or bad roads. Negative thinking and the praxis guided by it is the positive and positing effort to prevent this utter negativity. So he frames out negative thinking as positive. And he says that it allows us to peel away the constraints of a civilized barbarism in the established societies, peel away the problematics, and get the seed of a more perfected future using negative thinking and the praxis guided by it. Praxis is what you have when you combine theory, meaning really Hegelian reason, if, as we're going to see, but we could say critical theory, we could say postmodern theory, we could say woke or theory, if you want, what we just call capital T theory, put into practice. That's what praxis is. It's theory combined with being put into practice. So it's activism on behalf of a theoretical or ideological model. Well, when we take negative thinking and we, we, we do activism on behalf of that, then this negative thinking becomes positive because it prevents us from going into the 
possible calamities that are also contained in the seed of a more perfect liberated future could possibly blossom. It's very important, as you'll see, to understand that this is how this Hegelian religion thinks. Perfected society, we already have the seeds of it, and we just have to somehow peel away the problems, and then the perfected society will emerge. If you've listened to my other recent podcast, Communism Doesn't Know How, I go into this kind of magical thinking that they have, and I actually describe it as alchemical, and you're going to find out why I describe it as alchemical again and again as we go through this longer uh, discussion of Hegel and his relevance. So, this said, I think we already see then that to understand both the, the leftism over the last 200 years, but also Hegel's relevance to that, we have to grapple with this idea of the dialectic. Because this is, as I said, the operating system beneath all of leftism, at least since Hegel's time. And it really emerged in the form that we're looking at in leftism from the progressive school of thought that followed him in the 1820s and 1830s. It's referred to as young Hegelianism. Young Hegelianism, I'm not going to dive deeply into this because I want to get to Marx and the neo-Marxists, etc. But um, in the woke, young Hegelianism has to be distinguished from old Hegelianism. So Hegel is not particularly easy to decipher if you haven't read him. Uh, he can be quite quite difficult to decipher, actually. And so radically different interpretations of Hegel erupted in the wake of Hegel's later years in death, one of which is young Hegelianism, which was rampantly progressive, and one of which was old Hegelianism, which was ultra-conservative. In essence, very briefly, Hegel's philosophy, his systematic philosophy that he laid out, was supposed to describe the emergence of a perfected state, a perfected society, um, through the perfection of ideas and the young Hegelians looked around at the world that they lived in in the 1820s and 1830s in Prussia and said, we're not there yet. There are all kinds of problems. The dialectic still has to be applied to. There are all kinds of contradictions in our experience. Whereas the old Hegelians, being ultra-conservative, looked at the state of society they lived in and said, aha, Hegel was saying that we're already there. And so Hegel's dialectic had already achieve, fully achieved what it had aimed to do with the absolute as Hegel had it, and thus the perfected state of society, already had realized itself and emerged in Prussia at the time, which would then demand that, in a sense, that history had ended, uh, capital H history, and so absolutely no change would be needed from this kind of historical high point, which was a sort of proto-folkish national organization of the uh, Prussian state in the mid-19th century. So, Young Hegelians have to be distinguished from this in that they looked at this old Hegelian idea and thought, no, no way, there's all kinds of problems. And the young Hegelians um, had a student within their, their ranks, Karl Marx. Karl Marx was a young Hegelian. He was also influenced by other thinkers, as we'll discuss, who were also in this kind of idealist tradition. Uh, you know, what do we have like, you know, the Kant develops the, the dialectic, Fichte develops it further. This inspires Schelling, who worked alongside, but not with Hegel, and both Schelling and Hegel were profound influences on Marx. Um, but nevertheless, Marx was actually a young Hegelian, and so we can just turn to kind of understand the, central, the centrality of the dialectic, Hegel's dialectical application to Marx by going to the Marxist.org 
glossary. I love Marxists.org. I love to read this. I love to see the way the Marxists interpret these terms. It gives you tremendous, I'm writing an encyclopedia on my own website, on new discourses. So it gives me a tremendous insight into how these people think about their own terms. Of course, the woke are different than the Marxists, but it does give me good historical insight and helps me open up my mind and understand how they use the terms in multiple ways at once. But reading from the Marxist.org glossary, the entry on Hegel, what they write is the most important representative, this is describing Hegel, the most important representative of classical German philosophy. He represented an objective idealism, a brilliant investigators of, investigator of the laws of dialectic, which he was the, f- the first consciously to apply. So Marxists today believe that Hegel began the dialectical application, and that dialectical application is what Marx turned into dialectical materialism, which is the, the mode by which Marxism progressed and thought. Sort of the article of faith, it's like the religious engine of Marxism is dialectical materialism. So we have the, kind of just to summarize historically, we have Kant formulates the structure of the dialectic. This was developed further by Fichte and went on to inspire Schelling. Also, uh, Hegel would have been steeping in all this, and through both Hegel and Schelling, and, and also the way that Feuerbach had taken up from Hegel's thought within the young Hegelian movement, uh, Marx was able to, to take all these ideas and create dialectical materialism by putting his own spin on it. So Hegel took all these theoretical developments on the dialectic, and he sought to make them practical. That was what That's what the Marxists say. He was the first consciously to apply the laws of dialectic. And of course, ironically enough, he did this dialectically, or maybe it's not ironic, maybe it's ne- necessary to how he would approach he took the abstract, remember his, his formulation wasn't thesis, antithesis, synthesis, although we're going to kind of cling to that because it's easy to understand his was abstract, negative, concrete. Um, so he took the abstract form of dialectic put forth by Kant, challenged it against its negative to arrive at a concrete applicable form that the Marxists recognized he was the first to consciously apply. Apply to what? To the changing of society. That's what, that's what Hegel really did, is he figured out how to take this for 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 Kant, it's really a philosophical endeavor. It's it's something that's going on in in the realm of of philosophy. It's something like what uh, even you know maybe Socrates, uh, written down by Plato, would have been engaging. But it's it's really an article of philosophy, and it's a very useful one. We have, we even talk about this positively and how to have impossible conversations. Peter and I do the the dialectic of Hegel and Fichte. We mention, but really it's Kant and Fichte. Uh, we really should have taken a look at this uh, more closely, philosophically speaking, because theirs was a philosophical idea where we can compare ideas against one another and find the flaws and try to figure out what we're missing and reach a better understanding. And there is a conversational approach that philosophers frequently use to improve their ideas. You can find that kind of referred to in the Bible under iron sharpens iron. Um That's kind of a dialectical process that's abstract. It's a philosophical endeavor. Well, on the other hand, Hegel had this idea that we're going to use this to create a better society. We're going to change society using the dialectic by studying the ideas and the the shape of the state and the society itself and the, the spirit that it generates. So it's not just philosophical inquiry anymore. He figures out how to apply it. So Hegel brings the, the laws of dialectic into the world of application. So the beginning of praxis happens with Hegel. The dialectical praxis, as it were, Marx goes on to name this after having adopted it and done a number of things with it um, that we're going to get to. So central to all of Marxism, then, is this dialectic. 
and central to all of the left since Marx is Marxism. So the dialectic lies as the operating system underwriting everything that's going on with the left uh, over the last, I don't know, 200 years. Um, so taking from Marxist.org, we continue uh, they, they quote Engels and Marx both on this idea. So Engels wrote, they say in uh, his review of Marx's The Critique of the po of Political Economy, this is Engels speaking or writing, the Hegelian method, he writes, on the other hand, was, its, was in its existing form quite inapplicable. So for he Marx and Engels who were creating communism, um, it wasn't good enough. Uh, even the now applied form of the dialectic is still quite inapplicable because, as we'll see, he was too mystical. It was essentially idealist. This is back to Engels. And the main point in this case was the elaboration of a world outlook that was more materialist than any previous one. Hegel's method took as its point of departure pure thought, whereas here the starting point was to be inexorable facts. So this is him describing the difference between Marxist communism versus Hegelian dialectic. We're, dialectic. We're no longer going to engage in the realm of pure thought. We're going to move into the realm of inexorable facts. Um, Engels continues, a method which, according to its own admission, quote, came from nothing through nothing to nothing. That's He's quoting Hegel in The Science of Logic, Part 1, Section 2. He says, this was by no means appropriate here in this form. Here is to, to Marxism, to, to the political economy. Nevertheless, all of the available logical material, of all the available logical material, Engels writes, it was the only piece which could be used at least as a starting point. So Hegel becomes a starting point for what Marx wanted to do. It had not been criticized nor overcome. Not one of the opponents of the great dialectician had been able to make a breach in its proud structure. It fell into oblivion because the Hegelian school had not the slightest notion of what to do with it. The Hegelian school would be the young Hegelians here. It was therefore, above all, necessary to subject the Hegelian method to thoroughgoing criticism. What distinguished Hegel's thought, Engels continues, from that of all other philosophers was a tremendous sense of the historical upon which it was based. Abstract and idealist, though it was in form, yet the development of his thoughts always proceeded parallel with the development of world history, and the latter is really meant to be only the test of the former. In other words, Hegel said, Hegel's view was very historicist. He, he believed that history had a trajectory, history had a telos, and if you don't understand how history is moving, you don't really understand what's going on. And the dialectic is actually, for Hegel, the thing that is moving history. So Engels continues, If thereby the real relation was inverted and stood on its head, nevertheless, the real content entered everywhere into the philosophy. All the more so since Hegel, in contrast to his disciples, did not parade ignorance, but was one of the finest intellects of all time. He was the first who attempted to show a development and inner coherence in history. So this historicism, very important. And while today much in his philosophy of history may seem peculiar to us, yet the grandeur of his fundamental outlook is admirable even today. Whether one makes comparison with his predecessors or, to be sure, with anyone, with anyone who since his time has indulged in general reflections concerning history. 
Everywhere in his phenomenology, aesthetics, history of philosophy, this magnetic, uh, magnificent conception of history prevails, and everywhere the material is tr treated historically in, def in a definite, even if abstractly distorted, interconnection with history. So what I've said before, by the way, that critical theories only kind of concentrate themselves, you see this happening here. Engels is talking about needing, by commenting on Marx, is saying that what we need to do is take Hegel and concentrate him even further through critique. The critical theory that's emerging will eventually be named critical theory several decades later, almost a century later, but not quite. Um, it needs to be concentrated through more and more critique. The dialectic has to be applied to the dialectic in a sense. Uh, so Engels wraps up by writing this epoch-making conception of history. He's very taken with the historicism of Hegel, which of course is central to Marx's philosophy as well, and to Marxism. This epoch-making conception of history was the direct theoretical premise for the new materialist outlook, so dialectical materialism that Marx was forwarding. And this alone, uh, I guess it provides a typo, this alone provides a connecting point for the logical method too. Since this forgotten dialectics has led to such results even from the standpoint of pure thinking and had, in addition, so easily settled accounts with all preceding logic and metaphysics, there must be at any rate there must, at any rate, have been more to it than sophistry and hair-splitting, which, of course, uh, Schopenhauer would have viciously criticized it as just a bunch of sophistry, because it is. Um, but the criticism of his method, Engel final, uh, finally writes, with all of its official philosophy, had fought shy of and still does, with uh, was no trifle. Okay, so he's a big fan of the historicism. He thinks that Hegel brought forth very important ideas. The dialectic is a very important one, but it wasn't correct in its formulation. He says something about if it's standing on its head, it's going to have to be righted. Of course, uh, that's exactly what Marx had written. Marx later wrote, in fact, as this is still quoting from Marxist.org, in his preface to the second edition of Capital, Volume 1, he, Marx writes, My dialectic method is not only different from the Hegelian, but is its direct opposite. So abstract meets negative. Um, right. To Hegel, the life process of the human brain, i.e. the process of thinking, which under the name of the idea, he even transforms into an independent subject, is the demiurgos of the real world. And the real world is only the external phenomenal form of the idea. So just to kind of summarize what that means, for Hegel, there's the idea which is kind of what's going on for real because he's an idealist, and then the world becomes a image of the idea. Okay, and so Marx is like, that's upside down. What we have to actually look at is we have to look at the real world and go from there. So he writes, with me, on the contrary, the ideal is nothing else than the material world reflected by the human mind and translated into forms of thought. Marx is probably right on this. The mystification which dialectic suffers in Hegel's hands by no means prevents him from being the first to present its general form of working in a comprehensive and conscious manner. With him, it is standing on its head. It must be turned right side up again if you would discover the rational kernel within the mystical shell. And so the dialectic becomes obviously central, but the Marxists are not happy. Marx and Engels, specifically not the Marxists, are not happy and in, uh, with how it's been formulated, they say that by focusing on the ideal rather than the material, they get it upside down. Of course, as I pointed out, we see the structure of Hegel's dialectic being applied to Hegel's dialectic, where Hegel's dialectic is framed as the abstract, just as Hegel did to Kant's formulation of the dialectic. And now it has to be made more material. It's negation. It, it has to meet its negative, which is um, 
where where Mark says, with me, on the contrary, it's exactly the opposite. Um, so we have abstract meaning neg uh, negation, and so the concrete that's going to come out of this is going to be dialectical materialism for Marx. And so we see the dialectic turning on the dialectic and creating a new view that's supposed to be the progression of history. And this is being reflected, it's being written and shared. This is the entry for Hegel on today's Marxist.org website. So jumping entries, to give you more insight, we got to understand the dialectic. That's the goal right now, because I want you to understand that the dialectic has been the operating system of the left. It has been central to Engels, central to Marx, central to Hegel. Feuerbach was the one who tutored Marx and made him materialist in the first place uh, as a young Hegelian. So we've got this Hegel to young Hegelian to Marx chain where the dialectic is evolving through dialectical means. The operating system is so central to the left's thought that the operating system of the left is operating on itself to evolve itself. So we now have Hegel having applied the dialectic to Kant's dialectic, and we have Marx and Engels applying the dialectic to Hegel's dialectic to receive uh, di to get to dialectical materialism, which is the essence of Marxism. And so here we have, as we read in the Critical Race Theory book, and so the dialectic progresses. I told you there's a very important little sentence that you wouldn't normally care about when you read that. So now to go into the dialectic entry itself on Marxist.org, what do they write? They write, it was Hegel who was able to sum up this picture of universal interconnection and mutability of things in a system of logic, which is the foundation of what we today call dialectics. As Engels put it, so they quote Engels here, Quote, the whole world, natural, historical, intellectual, is represented as a process, that is, as in constant motion, change, transformation, development, and the attempt is made to trace out the internal connection that makes a continuous whole of all of this movement and development. They go on to write, this is Marxist.org again, that's the end of, of is how Engels put it. Um, it was in the decade after Hegel's death in the 1840s, when Hegel's popularity was at its peak in Germany, that Marx and Engels met and worked out the foundations of their critique of bourgeois society. Hegel's radical young followers, there's our young Hegelians, had in their hands a powerful critical tool, the dialectic, with which they ruthlessly criticized Christianity, the dominant doctrine of the day. This is, we'll see, something that Hegel was actually interested in as well. He wanted to reestablish a folkish German religion that escaped the Orientalism of Christianity, which he felt had been foisted upon Germany uh, kind of inappropriately. Well, the young Hegelians really felt this way, and they ruthlessly criticized Christianity using the dialectic. So, to carry on, however, one of these young Hegelians, Ludwig Feuerbach, pointed out that holy family was, after all, only a heavenly image of the earthly family, and said that by criticizing theology with philosophy, the young Hegelians were only doing the same as the Christians. Hegel's absolute idea was just another name for God. For Feuerbach, ideas were a reflection of the material world, and he held it to be ridiculous that an idea could determine the world. Feuerbach had declared himself a materialist. Marx and Engels began as supporters of Feuerbach. However, very soon they took up an opposition to Feuerbach to restore the Hegelian dialectic which had been abandoned by Feuerbach. Remember, this is Marxist.org summarizing the history of the dialectic for us here. And to free it from the rigidity of the idealistic Hegelian system and place the method on a materialist basis. So you see, it is the dialectic being applied to the dialectic itself. 
kind of amazing. Uh, so Hegel, they quote, was an idealist. To him, the thoughts within his brain were not the uh, were not the more or less abstract pictures of actual things and processes, but conversely, the thing uh, things and their evolution were only the realized pictures of the idea existing somewhere from eternity before the world was. This way of thinking turned everything upside down and completely reversed the actual connection of things in the world. Thus, for Marx and Engels, thoughts were not passive and independent reflections of the material world, we're still reading from Marxist.org, by the way, but products of human labor, and the contradictory nature of our thoughts had their origin in the contradictions within human society. This meant that dialectics was not something imposed on to the world from outside, which could be discovered by the activity of pure reason, but was a product of human labor changing the world. Its form was changed and developed by people, and could only be understood by the practical struggle to overcome these contradictions, not just in thought, but in practice. So, I, again, I make the claim, you know what, Hegel puts forth this dialectic, which he has dialectically derived from Kant, and via the uh, the the vehicle of the young Hegelians, we now have Marx and Engels trying to turn this materialist, and they actually are in fact dropping in a dialectic on the dialectic again and transforming it into something else. And the thing that comes out of this is the dialectical materialism, which Marx said stands Hegel on his head. So I think we have now firmly established the line of the dialectic from Hegel to the young Hegelians to Marx and Marxism, and the Marxists themselves obviously still support this because they write about this in this particular way on their website today. So this, I think, line has been that the operating system of the left up from Hegel to Marx is dialectic, and it in fact takes the dialectic to concentrate the dialectic into a form that becomes Marxism is a dialectically enhanced dialectic. So the operating system is almost reflexive in the sense that it concentrates itself. And this is where Marxism comes from. And again, it has to be stressed that the entire operating system of the left from the 1840s and 50s, when Marx and Engels start writing this stuff down, and Marxism starts to become a thing, especially following the Ru Russian Revolution in 1917, the entire operating system of the left really becomes Marxist up through probably the 1960s. Uh, when finally the failures of communism become undeniable, when finally Khrushchev comes out and speaks and reveals as the, the premier of the Soviet Union how horrible Stalin's regime was, how opposite to what people claimed it was, how what Stalin claimed it was, what, the, what Walter Durante at the New York Times claimed it was, the propagandist got the Pulitzer Prize, kind of like Nicole Hannah-Jones today. So I think we've established that far. Well, it turns out that this, even though we have this kind of disillusionment with Marxism in the 1920s, we have this frustration among many communists that the Russian Revolution worked, many Marxists, but no other revolutions are working. The Hungarian Revolution failed. No other revolutions are sparking. Marx's prediction that they would happen in big industrial centers like London and New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and Berlin isn't coming to pass. It's only in BFE peasant Russia that it's happened. It tried in Hungary, but Hungary couldn't do it. Something is wrong, and the neo-Marxists come up with a new theory. Well, the neo-Marxists are very interested in the dialectic, and they in fact make it central to the project. They name it all the time. They talk about it all the time. Titles of their books include, for example, The Dialectic of Enlightenment. Um, 
Critical theory is in fact the application of the precise dialectic that's now been dialectically moved again from where Marx was. In fact, it's been said that the critical theorists turned that where Marx said that Hegel was standing on his head, they put Hegel back upright because Marx is actually the one who turned him upside down by making it too materialist and not realistic enough to help people actually operate. Um, they didn't take it back to the idea as Hegel did. They took it into the realm of culture. That's why they're often called cultural Marxists, but it'd be more accurate kind of, I think, to call them cultural Hegelians. Um, but at any rate, uh, or, or dialectical culturalists or something, cultural dialecticists or something like this. So they're not applying it in the Kantian sense. That's been dialecticized into the Hegelian sense. They're not applying it in the strict Hegelian sense. That's been dialecticized into uh, dialectical materialism and Marxism, and they no longer believe in that. And so they're now criticizing that. They're bringing the critique to Marxism itself, and they're putting it into the realm of culture. And by doing so, they are now doing it in this new way where the dialectic has applied to the dialectic repeatedly to come up with this new thing. But they're also becoming much more politically activated again, like the young Hegelians were. And so they're kind of dipping back to when Marx was his most young Hegelian in his very early writings. Uh, some neo-Marxist critiques suggest that Marx lost his way while writing Capital. Um, the Communist Manifesto was better. Uh, and, but by the time he's getting in his, his early letters are best. And when he started getting into writing things like Capital, he was already kind of off his rocker. He'd gone too far uh, smelling his own farts, if you will. And they got it wrong. So they wanted to put this Hegel back into Marx, but without making the same mistakes where Marx had already, to them, rightly critiqued Hegel. So this was kind of one of their big projects. Of course, they also wanted to work Freud in, they also wanted to work social science in, and some other things. Um, but they also wanted to figure out how to attack culture, specifically having de decided, following people like Gramsci, following people like uh, George Lukács, that, um, that, that culture somehow upholds uh, society and prevents these revolutions to the to the end of history, to the utopia, to communism, really. And so it's a very politically activated sense for the neo-Marxists in a very different way. Um, but the, again, we're seeing my case that I'm trying to make is this is the fundamental operating system of, the, of, of leftism. It's what's driving their vehicle. Um, it's what makes their computer work if you want to stick with operating system metaphor, I guess. This is how the left thinks, it's how it moves, it's how it achieves its goals, and so it must be understood if you want to understand what's happening in the world today with this blossoming of absolutely insane woke leftism, which I'm telling you is the last, or the most recent manifestation, I should say, hopefully the last, but the most recent manifestation of this crappy line of thought, this crappy religion, as it's come down for the last 200 years, ultimately from the metaphysics of Hegel, which we'll get to a bit further down. So to convince you just how central the dialectic is to the process of the neo-Marxists and to show you how they use it, I'm going to quote a number of examples from them. So Max Horkheimer, uh, the first uh, the first um, chair of the Frankfurt School, the Institute for Social Research, writes in Traditional and Critical Theory, where the idea of critical theory is defined for the first time. He writes in the following pages, this is actually in a footnote. This activity, which is what he's talking about in, in terms of his, his methodology, critical theory, the following pages, this activity is called critical activity. 
This actually comes from Marx, by the way. He didn't make up this term. You could go all the way back to the critique of pure reason or whatever you want to do with Kant. You could, whatever you want to say. But the point is actually that Marx had developed, Marx had developed something he called the uh, critical philosophy. And the critical activity comes out of the critical philosophy. And for Marx, that meant the ruthless criticism of everything that exists, uh, largely in order to tear it down and make room for his own, uh, his own vision that he was imagining into the world. Uh, so Horkheimer has written in the following pages, his activity is called critical activity. The term is used here less in the sense it has in the idealist critique of pure reason, so not Kant, than in the sense that it has in the dialectical critique of political economy, so Hegel. In particular, though, political economy was that phrase we saw from Marx describing political economy that Engels was commenting on when I read from earlier. So we're talking about Hegel through Marx. It points to an essential aspect of the dialectical theory of society, Horkheimer concludes. So Horkheimer, you know, first chair of the first leader of the um, Frankfurt School, the Institute for Social Research at Goethe University, that uh, is really where critical theory comes from. It was developed. This is the seat of neo-Marxism. Um, this actually arose when he uh, Horkheimer, I mean, in conversation with some others, envisioned the idea of creating for the critical left a great analysis and eventually book on the dialectic that would restore something of Hegel from Marx. And Marx's failures uh, were, were, you know, critical to understanding that task. We had to criticize Marx. We have to do the dialectic to Marx's dialectically derived dialectical materialism, which was derived from um, Hegel's dialectic at this point. And so he produces eventually in 1944, 1947, this book that I mentioned a minute ago with Theodore Adorno, another major neo-Marxist called The Dialectic of Enlightenment, which is considered to be the, the real comprehensive treatment of critical theory, or in other words, the first real statement of neo-Marxism and what neo-Marxism is about. The whole book is titled The Dialectic of Enlightenment, where they're trying to explain that the Enlightenment unleashes its own dialectic that turns reason into unreason. It turns rationality into irrationality. Uh, so... I'll read a little bit around and from this book. Um, in the Dialectic of Enlightenment, Horkheimer and Adorno make the case in the words of one of its, uh, the editor of one of its editions, uh, Philosophical Fragments edition, which happens to be the one that I have. The editor's name is uh, Gunzlin Noor, if I'm pronouncing that right. Or it's an afterword where he describes what's going on with the Dialectic of Enlightenment. And he writes, the self-destruction of Western reason is seen to be grounded in an historical and fateful dialectic of the domination of external nature, internal nature, and society. Enlightenment, enlightenment which split these spheres apart is traced back to its mythical roots. Enlightenment and myth are not seen, therefore, as irreconcilable opposites, but as dialectically mediated qualities of both real and intellectual life. As they write in the book, Myth is already enlightenment, and enlightenment reverts to mythology. This paradox is, funda is the fundamental thesis of the book, meaning dialectic of enlightenment. Reason, uh, Noah writes, reason appears as inextricably entangled with domination. Since the beginnings of history, liberation from the compulsions of external nature has been achieved only by introducing a power relation. I'm sorry, a power relationship of second degree. Both the, represent, uh, both the repression of the internal nature of human drives, that was very important to Marcuse in particular, uh, and social domination are already at work in myth. Finally, fascism and the modern culture industry are the forms taken by a return of repressed nature. So you can hear the Freudian aspects being worked in as well. 
in the service of an advancing rationalization of instrumental thought modeled on the domination of nature and serving its purposes, enlightened reason is progressively hollowed out until it reverts to the new mythology of a resurrected relationship to nature, to violence. This is what the dialectic of enlightenment is, is arguing. That's what the, the editor is writing here. This theme he writes is summed up in the opening sentences of the book. Enlightenment understood in the widest sense as the advance of thought has always aimed at liberating human beings from fear and installing them as masters, yet the whole enlightened earth is radiant with triumphant calamity. So he's saying that the enlightenment has devolved into domination. Reason has become a tool of domination. You can see the kind of the precursors that postmodernism is going to be thinking similar things already here in 44 and 47 from these guys and these neo-Marxists. Um, I guess you could say that the, this book kind of culminates very near the end in a kind of a cheerless proclamation is his statement of thesis really in the progress of the of industrial society which is supposed to have conjured away the law of increasing misery it had itself brought into being the concept which justified the whole the human being as a person as a bearer of reason is going under the dialectic of enlightenment is culminating objectively in madness so rationality becomes irrationality by the dialectic of enlightenment and of course that's where you're going to have a thesis meeting its antithesis. Rationality is becoming irrationality, and so a synthesis that escapes this is what's going to be needed, and that's really what they're calling for, and critical theory is framed as the tool to do it. That's the purpose of this book, Dialectic of Enlightenment. So the neo-Marxists are completely on board with the concept of dialectic. Again, the left, the, the, the neo-Marxists are going to become the things that lead up to Herbert Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse is going to become the father of the new left, which is supposed to take over where the old left, which is the Marxists, left off. And we already see this trajectory of relying still on that operating system of the dialectic. And so when we turn to Marcuse, it's no surprise that we see him talking about the dialectic all the time. When we read, for example, Herbert Marcuse in One Dimensional Man, which he wrote in 1964, this being his most popular and famous book, sold 300 plus thousand copies in the first year from what i understand so we're talking about an absolute intellectual rock star absolutely hugely influential this laid the groundwork for the new for the new left that emerged during the vietnam war into a new era you know started with hippies and civil rights and turned into eventually what we're dealing with today in the woke and what marcuse writes in one dimensional man writing in 1964 is dialectical thought understands the critical tension between is and ought first as an ontological condition pertaining to the structure of being itself however the recognition of this state of being its theory extends from the beginning a concrete practice intends from the beginning a concrete practice so what he's saying is that we have to understand through critical through the analysis of critical tension between is and not between what is what the world actually is and what it ought to be that's that normative vision of a perfected society and this is this is something very important dialectical thought takes this as an ontological condition that pertains to the structure of being itself that's what he says however he writes, the recognition of this state of being, its theory, intends from the beginning a concrete practice. So you see this language of, of Hegel. We have the abstract meeting the neg and its negative and resulting in a concrete practice. In other words, activism that's going to lead us to this new multidimensional, for him, two-dimensional analysis that's going to use critical theory in particular to achieve what it's trying to do. It's going to have is and ought, not just is as its analytical mode. 
two-dimensional, not one-dimensional. There's more to the one-dimensional metaphor, but we'll leave it at that. So this, this dialectical thing is the essence of critical theory. And so even from, you, you, we, got the, we, we had up to Marx, no question. He called his project the dialectical materialism, right? So up to Marx, there's no question that the dialectic of Hegel, derived from Hegel, I should say, through the dialectical process itself, is the operating system of the old left. Well, with Marcuse, we have the birth of the new left, and that also is going to rely upon this dialectic. He mentions the dialectic repeatedly in all of his works. So with Marcuse pushing it this way, it's no longer just going to be central to the old left and whatever remnant goes forward out of the death of the falling of the, the various communist regimes, the horrors of communism, crisis of faith in communism that arose from most, but not all Marxists at the time. So not only the remnant of the old left and all of the old left leading back to, uh, to, to the old Marxists, but also to the new left that arose in its wake, largely starting in the years leading up to and then launching off during the Vietnam War. So what does this look like in practice? What does this dialectic of the new left look like in practice? So we turn back to Marcuse. You can look at this a couple of examples from Marcuse's writing. Again, in One Dimensional Man, he writes, the laws of thought are laws of reality, or rather become the laws of reality if thought understands the truth of immediate experience as the appearance of another truth, which is that of the true forms of reality of the ideas. Thus, there is contradiction rather than correspondence between the dialectical thought and the given reality. The true judgment judges this reality not on its own terms, but in terms which envision its subversion, and in this subversion reality comes into its own truth. So Marcuse is recommending a very subversive approach and application. The dialectic becomes a subversive activity. It's something that we're going to get in and we're going to get inside and do kind of under undermining that which exists by confronting that which is with its negations. And so thesis is going to meet antithesis in a subversive way, and it's going to force us to look for, probably force us to look for some synthesis, or at least to tear, remember earlier when we read from the essay on liberation, it's going to force us to start tearing away the constructs of current society so the seed of the perfect society can blossom. This is Marcusean thought at this point, and it requires a multi-dimensional or two-dimensional at least uh, thought that he's speaking about in One Dimensional Man. So uh, we can turn to more concrete examples of this in practice from Marcuse, because Marcuse is really paradigmatic of the post-war, uh, post-World War II, I should say, uh, critical theory school that inspired the black feminists, who we'll talk about momentarily, um, kind of this second generation critical theory that then becomes the, the roadmap to developing the woke that we live in today. So in Repressive Tolerance, which I've read in full in another podcast, four episodes, Herbert Marcuse writes, according to a dialectical proposition, it is the whole which determines the truth. So again, we're seeing this Hegelian idea that the, 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 the whole is, you have to understand the whole to understand the particulars. This is a kind of Hegelian metaphysical axiom. And the dialectic is how you're going to approach doing this. Again, we're talking about this being the operating system of leftism. So we're looking at new leftism, its emergence from Marcuse here in Repressive Tolerance. He says, this is not in the sense that the whole is prior or superior to its parts, but in the sense that its structure and function determine every particular condition and relation. This is pure Hegelianism. You can't understand the particulars without understanding the whole. So the whole is the thing you're trying to extract from the particulars. It's that same idea of peeling away the, the problems of society so that the 
the, the utopian society can emerge so that the seed of the perfect society can blossom, if you will, or bloom. So he writes, thus, within a repressive society, even progressive movements threaten to turn into their opposite to the degree to which they accept the rules of the game. Generally, the function and value of tolerance depend on the equality prevalent in the society in which tolerance is practiced. Tolerance itself stands subject to overriding criteria. Its range and its limits cannot be defined in terms of the respective society. So really what he's arguing for in repressive tolerance is the dialectical treatment of tolerance, where tolerance is going to be turned into intolerance. It's going to be turned into, it's going, tolerance is going to meet intolerance, thesis meets antithesis, and the synthesis is going to be a repressive tolerance, or what he calls a discriminating tolerance, or a liberating tolerance, that's going to be tolerance that's not actually tolerant at all, but that's going to lead us toward a new and uh, better liberated future. So thesis is tolerance, antithesis is intolerance, synthesis is repressive tolerance, or this discriminating, liberating tolerance. And so now tolerance gets di get the dialectic gets the dialectic applied to it, and you now you get this totally tilted playing field that I said is the logic of the world we live in today, the logic of the left, is repressive tolerance, which ultimately its basic thesis is that conservatives must be censored. In fact, they must be pre-censored. It's not enough that they lose their freedom of speech. They have to lose the freedom to even think the thought by being having their ideas pre-censored before they can even enter their mind. So you're not talking just about the freedom of speech, you're talking about cognitive liberty being put under threat by repressive tolerance. And this is the product of, again, the point that I'm trying to make is that in the neo-Marxist era, we're here in the 1965 for this essay, in the neo-Marxist era, we are now talking about the dialectic being still central, it's still the operating system. We're doing the dialectic on the dialectic, we're doing the dialectic on tolerance, we're doing the dialectic on other ideas, uh, we'll see in a second democratic forms are going to be pulled into the, to this. And so the dialectic is still the operating system of everything that's going on through the left. The old left had it, the new left is adopting it. So in his essay on liberation from 1969, Marcuse writes dialectics of democracy. That's the heading, right? The dialectics of democracy. This is how dialectics apply in democracy. If democracy, he writes, means self-government to free people with justice for all, then the realization of democracy would presuppose abolition of the existing pseudo-democracy. So we have thesis. We live in a democracy. Or we, we, we want democracy. Thesis. This is a democracy. Antithesis. It's a pseudo-democracy because there are actually systems of power right? There are systems of power with justice for all. Well, not everybody's getting justice. So we don't live in a democracy, thesis. We live in a pseudo-democracy, antithesis. So we're going to need a synthesis of this. And he writes, in the dynamic of corporate capitalism, this is where he's describing the pseudo-democracy, I think, the fight for democracy thus tends to assume anti-democratic forms and to the extent to which the democratic decisions are made in parliaments on all levels, the opposition will tend to become extra-parliamentary. The movement to extend constitutionally professed rights and liberties to the daily life of the oppressed minorities, even the movement to preserve existing rights and liberties will become subversive to the degree to which it will meet the stiffening resistance of the majority against an exaggerated interpretation and application of equality and justice. This is very similar to what we're seeing today. This logic is playing out exactly right now under these so-called equity and racial and other justice, social justice movements. So what do we have here? Democracy is the thesis. Thesis, democracy, antithesis. Pseudo-democracy because of systemic power dynamics. The synthesis is going to be what Marcuse elsewhere calls ideal democracy. The communists also refer to ideal democracy. If you don't know, the communists position themselves as 
ideal democracy because for them, if everybody's not perfectly equal, if everybody's not got exactly the same amount of money, everybody's got not exactly the same amount of opportunity, exactly the same amount of access, you can't have true democracy because certain people aren't going to be able to speak up as much. They're not going to be able to get to the polls as readily. They're not going to have the same ability to participate or the same access. So it's not a true democracy until there's perfect equity. And so you can actually see here how they subvert language, right? The word democracy meets this argument that we're going to call its antithesis. Well, no, it's really a pseudo-democracy because there's systemic power. And so we have the synthesis of an ideal democracy, which is a, has an adjective in front of it, but the adjective gets dropped so that when these people speak of democracy, they later, or tolerance, they will later mean not liberating or discriminating tolerance necessarily, or sorry, not regular tolerance, but liberating or discriminating tolerance, and you won't actually know which one for sure. And here we have the word democracy being subverted into this ideal democracy, which presupposes that we're in a communist-like situation before it counts. And this is how their language games are constructed. If you want to understand why they have so much doublespeak, this is where it comes from. But again, my point so far, I'm dropping a lot of extra nuggets, point so far is to convince you, and I think I have done so, that indeed the neo-Marxists are certainly going to have been tied up with this idea of the dialectic. And the dialectic is being applied to the dialectic again in this kind of reflexive pattern that concentrates it. And so through, we got Hegel now leading into the young Hegelians and the young Hegelians leading into Marx and the Marx Marx leading into the Marxists and the Marxists leading into the, like including Lenin, and the, Marx, the Marxists leading into the neo-Marxists. And the constant thread has still been this dialectical engine, which even gets applied to itself to create its new iteration. So the overarching project or the underlying operating system of leftism for the past 200 years, I'm going to keep repeating it, has been the dialectic. Now, I want to take a quick diversion into the postmodernists. I'm not going to develop this very far. But I also have to touch on one neo-Marxist here, Theodore Adorno. So as for the postmodernist and Theodore Adorno, which you can read in his 1966 book called, so again, now 1966, we're getting a lot later. Um, postmodernism is actually emerging in France already at this point. But in 1966, Adorno writes this book, Negative Dialectics. And in both of these cases, postmodernism and in my reading of Negative Dialectics, it seems to be the case that we have gone, these guys have actually gone post-Hegelian. Um, the the neo-Marxists are, I'm sorry, the, where the critical theorists are normally called neo-Marxists, the postmodernists are usually described as post-Marxists. In other words, they've given up on Marxism. They retain much of the same underlying ethos, but they don't believe that it works, and they become kind of negative and despairing, and they create kind of an upside-down world version of it that just kind of is is cynical and and all of this. Well, it seems that, you know, with, with the publishing of negative dialectics, which is extraordinarily critical of Hegel. turns out uh, the postmodernists were also quite critical of Hegel. I think Foucault is critical of Hegel and certainly being much more Nietzschean in his, actually, in his approach. But I think Derrida, if I'm not mistaken, although I'd have to look that up again, is very critical of Hegel. And we certainly see Lyotard being critical of Hegel as well in the postmodern condition. Um, we see this kind of shift with some of these thinkers, postmodernists in particular, but also Adorno and negative dialectics, to a post-Hegelian structure. Now, like I just said, to go post means to have retained the essential core of the of, of what's going on, of the approach, while deciding that the specific projects that had been launched on that core must have been being done terribly incorrectly and had failed. So you, you abandon the specifics while retaining the essential core. So in, in, in this sense, 
both the later writings of Adorno getting into the 1960s and the postmodernists seem very much like they're anti-Hegel on a super superficial writing, but they're not really that. They're post-Hegelian. They're mostly despairing of the idea of the synthetic project, but they're not despairing of the idea, if you read Negative Dialectic, of the collision of thesis and antithesis. And if you read the ideas like Derrida's deconstruction, or even Foucault's ideas where you're going to expose the contradictions in the progress of history, or the, 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 the contradictions of progress, or the contradictions of the idea of, of calling anything knowledge at all, these are still very thesis-antithesis colliding projects. But the thing is, is these guys aren't looking for a synthesis. They aren't trying to do that final third step. They've become post-Hegelian in that they've adopted the dialectical core, but abandoned the idea that a synthesis is necessary. Adorno expresses this in negative dialectics. Derrida does so through deconstruction. And the idea is really to get to particulars rather than to come up with some new synthetic whole. So synthesis for post-Hegelian thought, that's postmodernism and the later Adorno and negative dialectic, is really a fool's errand for them. They think that's what's gone wrong. That's why this has produced terrible results. This is why the Marxist projects failed. The idea of trying to create a synthesis out of the dialectical process is a fail is a failure. So for Adorno, we have to have a negative dialectic. For Derrida, we just need to deconstruct. So for them, it's better to just take things apart and leave them apart at the level of particulars. It's not a very good example, but an example I've tried to give for this in the past is, you know, I can go into my living room. It turns out I have a very nice round kitchen table and it has kind of four legs and I have a small coffee table. The kitchen table's wood. The coffee table's metal, as it turns out, and it has three legs and is kind of shaped somewhat triangularly, but curved, like curvy triangle. And then I have like a kitchen island thing that's also wood, but it obviously you can't get under it. It doesn't have legs at all. It's a, it's like a block and has wheels under it. And so you could easily consider this flat surfaces on top of all of these, one being round, one being this weird triangle, one being almost perfectly square. Two of these are wood, one of them's metal. They're at three different heights. They're very different things. You could say, oh, well, they're tables. You could even use the couch as a table. You could set things on it. You could lay things out. And so the idea of table can be, uh, attacked by this idea that, well, these two things are very different from one another, but we call them both table, or these three things are very different from one another, we call them table, and just leave it. We don't have to call them tables. Leave it as, at, you know, this dining table, this coffee table, and this kitchen island. Leave them at particulars. It's sort of the idea. So the general thrust here is is that the dialectic is the, the the general thrust of the dialectic is still running. We're still going to collide ideas against their 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 opposites, their antithesis, their contradictions, um, their negatives, really in the Hegelian frame. But we're not going to try to put the broken pieces back together. That's gone. They're in, the, in their despair, their pessimism, and the cynicism of being post-Hegelian, post-Marxist, or post-modernist. Um, Adorno thinks he has the ticket. The postmodernists are a little bit more negative. That's a big difference between them. But it's difficult to actually tell. If you read all of negative dialectic, there's no clear example. There are just lots of very abstruse examples. I've read criticisms of negative dialectic that it's impossible to understand what the negative dialectics is doing without reading the entire book and comprehending it. And then you just have this idea of what it's doing. So you don't have any concrete structures. That table thing might be BS. Um, as far as Foucault goes, as long as we're talking about postmodernists, he gives his usual critiques for what it's worth, uh, that, that the Hegelian approach might be good or bad, the dialectic might be good or bad. Um, I picked this up in the Foucault Reader, and I'm trying to, re I don't recall, I didn't write down which 
uh, of his essays or books that comes out of. But the Hegelian dialectical approach might be good or bad, but the underlying engine of his project is still going to be Hegelian in that it's trying to re reveal the internal contradictions and ideas like progress, categories, science, truth, knowledge, and then just kind of leave it at that because for Foucault, the idea was to break down restrictions so that he could so-called expand potentialities. We see the same language in Marcuse as well, the idea of expanding uh, the potential range of being human into achieving liberation. So these are pretty consistent themes. They're ultimately Hegelian. The postmodern left is like this despairing, broken, let's not even try to do anything positive with it. Uh, whereas all of the positive projects that came out of the dialectic are in the synthetic aspect, thesis, antithesis, then building a synthesis. And the postmodernists and even this later negative dialectic Adorno are kind of abandoning that project at this point in the late 60s, whereas Marcuse is still pretty into it, right? And Marcuse really became the defining feature of the new left, uh, which means that, again, my from young Hegelian into Marxist old left into uh, Marcusean New Left, all of the leftists are still operating very strongly in this particular frame, this Hegelian dialectical frame. So the dialectic is the operating system of leftism for the past 200 years is the point I really want to take home from this half, this first half of what I'm talking about with Hegel. I also have to make the case that this dialect, this reliance on dialectic, and I'm telling you, this is going to be long, there's a lot to this. This reliance on the dialectic appears in the woke literature as well. So let's start with Patricia Hill Collins' landmark book in 1990, Black Feminist Thought. We're going to see the dialectic re invoked repeatedly. Remember also that it appears in the uh, critical race theory book, right? And so the dialectic progresses. The bigger thing gets resolved, so now we have to look at the smaller thing, so the dialectic progresses. That's, that's the uh, theme there in the Critical Race Theory book. Well, here in 1990 in Black Feminist Thought, which is a landmark book, it's not quite critical race theory. It's like the proto-critical race theory. It is black feminism. And the link, by the way, to black feminism is that Herbert Marcuse, not only did he inspire much of the black liberationist movement to think in critical theory ways, not only was his or his ideas picked up by that, but they were particularly picked up by the black feminists. The black feminists would have included as a thought leader Angela Davis, who was the PhD student of Herbert Marcuse, and she was very, very influential on the development of black feminist thought, and black feminism comes into its fruit here. You can even find, for example, Ibram Kendi praising Angela Davis explicitly in his book Stamped from the Beginning, which traces five thinkers, one of whom is Angela Davis. Very significant figure in the development of woke thought. Here, right at the cusp of the birth time of birth of woke, 1990, in kind of the pinnacle book of black feminist thought, titled "Black Feminist Thought" from Patricia Hill Collins, a gigantic figure in the field, we read: "Black feminism remains important because U.S. black women constitute an oppressed group. As a collectivity." U.S. black women participate in a dialectical relationship linking African-American women's oppression and activism. So oppression and activism have to be related dialectically. Dialectical relationships of this sort mean that two parties are opposed and opposite. As long as black women's subordination within intersecting oppressions of cl race, class, gender, sexuality, and nation persists, black feminism as an activist response to that oppression will remain needed. In similar fashion, the overarching purpose of U.S. black feminist thought is also to resist oppression, both its practices and the ideas that justify it. If intersecting oppressions did not exist, black feminist thought and similar oppositional knowledges 
would be unnecessary. As a critical social theory, black feminist thought aims to empower African-American women within the context of social injustice sustained by intersection, intersecting oppressions. Since black women cannot be fully empowered unless intersecting oppressions themselves are eliminated, black feminist thought supports broad principles of social justice that transcend U.S. black women's particular needs. Dialectical relationships. Dialectical thinking already present here, very core to understanding how black women as a collectivity, <laughs> as a political group, are related to all the other axes of oppression and how they're to understand their own oppression and how these uh, these oppressions bang up against each other and compete against one another and, and clamor for attention. And the goal, as we haven't talked about yet, but from Marcuse is to, to, to create solidarity. And that solidarity, as we'll talk about a little bit more later, is to be affected through intersectionality. By the way, the title of Patricia Hill Collins' next big book after Black Feminist Thought in 1990 was Intersectionality. 1993, if I'm not mistaken, though I don't have it in front of me. So what else does she write in Black Feminist Thought? This dialectic of oppression and activism, the tension between the suppression of African-American women, women's ideas and our intellectual activism in the face of that suppression, constitutes the politics of U.S. black feminist thought. The dialectics of oppression and activism constitutes the politics of U.S. black feminist thought. More important, understanding this dialectical relationship is critical in assessing how U.S. black feminist thought, its core themes, epistemological significance, and connections to domestic and transnational black feminist practice is fundamentally embedded in a political context that has challenged its very right to exist. So, dialectic. It's the center, it is, it is the politics. The dialectic of oppression and activism constitutes the politics of U.S. black feminist thought. I'm telling you, it's the operating system upon which all of this stuff is based. The critical race theory comes out of black feminism. Hello. Okay, so what else does she write in black feminist thought? I have several quotes from this. Historically, while they often disagreed on its expression, some U.S. black women were profoundly reformist, while more radical thinkers bordered on the revolutionary. African-American women intellectuals who were nurtured in social conditions of racial segregation strove to develop black feminist thought as critical social theory. Regardless of, and remember that's critical theory, right? That's critical theory, which is based in the dialectic, because we just heard that from Horkheimer just a minute ago. Regardless of social class and other differences among U.S. black women, all were in some way affected by intersecting oppressions of race, gender, and class. The economic, political, and ideological dimensions of U.S. black women's oppression suppressed the intellectual production of individual black feminist thinkers at the same time. These same social conditions simultaneously stimulated distinctive patterns of U.S. black women's activism that also influenced and was influenced by individual black women thinkers. Thus, the dialectic of oppression and activism characterizing U.S. black women's experience with intersecting oppressions also influenced the ideas and actions of black women intellectuals. Dialectic, dialectic, dialectic. We're drawing a straight line now that is the twist. So I shouldn't call it a straight line. It's like a twist. It's like a twisting line, like a twisting and concentrating line, from Hegel straight to Patricia Hill Collins, Black feminist thought. And the reason that that line is twisting and concentrating is because the dialectic is being applied to the dialectical process as it goes. So she writes again. As long as social justice remains elusive for African-American women, it is likely to evade U.S. society overall. This is always just asserted, by the way. They just say that. If black women don't have all of whatever they want, then U.S. society doesn't have it either. That's just an assertion that's core to critical race theory. 
um, and in this case, black feminism, from which critical race theory sprung. What do you think Kimberly Crenshaw was? Black feminist. Therefore, Collins writes, the need for black women's activism is most likely will persist. But while the dialectical relationship linking oppression and activism remains, that's theory and practice, or in other words, praxis as its uh, synthesis, the changing organization of intersecting oppressions as well as the contours of activism required for resistance demand a dynamic black women's activism and an equally vigorous U.S. black feminism. So theory and practice both have to be put into play. We're going to see that theory and practical are very central to the way that Hegel thought about these things as well and in dialectic got applied to it. And of course, Marx derived the idea of praxis, which is theory put into practice uh, from these same ideas. So the lines are very straight here. So one more from Patricia Hill Collins. Thus far, this volume, this is near the end of the book, has synthesized two main approaches to power. One way of approaching power concerns the dialectical relationship linking oppression and activism, where groups with greater power oppress those with lesser amounts. Rather than seeing social change or lack or Rather than seeing social change or lack of it as preordained and outside the realm of human action, the notion of a dialectical relationship suggests that change results from human agency. Because African-American women remain relegated to the bottom of the social hierarchy from one generation to the next, again just asserted, U.S. black women have a vested interest in opposing oppression. This is not an intellectual issue for most African-American women. It is a lived reality. Lived reality, indeed. As long as black women's oppression persists, so will the need for black women's activism. Moreover, dialectical analyses of power point out that when it comes to social injustice, groups have competing interests that often generate conflict. So, black feminism, one of the key intellectual roots of uh, critical race theory, one of the key pillars, theories within uh, critical social justice theory, dialectic. Its engine is dialectical. The dialectical engine tracing all the way back to Hegel. This is, again, modified by Feuerbach, modified by Marx, modified by the neo-Marxists, modified again by Marcuse, modified again into black feminism through dialectical processes at every single step. This is what we're seeing. The dialectical engine, dialectical operating system of leftism both old leftism, new leftism, that's following Marcuse, and now woke leftism. So we can see the same reliance on dialectic in Bell Hooks's book. Bell Hooks is a uh, black feminist as well. In 1984, she writes feminist theory from margin to center. This is a very huge theme for them, margins to center. Kimberly Crenshaw's famous paper, Mapping the Margins. What does Bell Hooks write in 1984? Yet women need to know that ideas and theories are important. And absolute ideas and theories, right? Ideas, that's Hegel. And absolutely essential for envisioning and making a successful feminist movement, one that will mobilize groups of people to transform this society. Ironically, lack of knowledge about revolutionary politics leads women to see ideas and theories as unimportant. In their chapter on dialectics and revolution, Grace Lee Boggs and James Boggs discuss the importance of ideas to revolutionary activists. What do they write? Revolutionary revolutionists this is quoting the two Boggses, revolutionists seek to change reality to make it better. Therefore, revolutionists not only need the revolutionary philosophy of dialectics, they need a revolutionary ideology, idea, a body of ideas based on analyzing 
the main contradictions of the particular society which they are trying to change, projecting a vision of a higher form of reality in which this contradiction would be resolved and relating this resolution to a social force or forces responsible for and capable of achieving it. In other words, a critical theory. That's like the definition of a critical theory right there. How does it operate? Through a philo revolutionary philosophy of dialectics. So this is quoted in Bell Hooks's book as support for the case that she's making that black feminists in particular and feminists more in general need to be thinking in terms of philosophies and ideas if they're going to have a successful movement. They can't be anti-intellectuals, she's writing. So the uh, Boggses go on as quoted in Bell Hooks. It is only after you have arrived at the correct ideology that it makes sense to develop your revolutionary politics, i.e. the programs necessary to mobilizing and organizing the revolutionary social forces. If your ideology is wrong, that is misdirected or limited, then all of the most brilliant programs for militant activity must be absolutely clear about this sequence from revolutionary philosophy to revolutionary ideology to revolutionary politics. The dialectic is at the heart of this. Bell Hooks, extremely influential, writing in 1984 about the centrality of the dialectic. What is described here is literally, literally the Hegelian dialectic, right? Did you catch it, right? We'll read that sentence again. They need a revolutionary ideology, that is, a body of ideas based on analyzing the main contradictions of the particular society, we're going to see that's related to the Geist, which they are trying to change, projecting a vision of a higher form of reality. So there's your ideas, the, idea, the idealism, in which this contradiction would be resolved and relating this resolution to a social force or forces responsible for and capable of achieving it. As we'll see, Hegel is a great big statist. So we're going to see this kind of trinity of the kind of the culture or the spirit of society giving rise to the idea in the relationship to the ideas of society and the ideas in the relationship to the state and the state in its relationship to Again, that spirit of society. That's a very Hegelian sentence. That is Hegel. That is Hegel, quoted from two Boggses in Bell Hooks's book in 1984. Bell Hooks being absolutely instrumental in the to the rising of somewhat of critical race theory, but actually of inserting critical race theory and black feminist thought, which we just discussed from 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 Collins, directly into critical pedagogy into education after her book 19, her 1994 book Teaching to Transgress. So again, the operating system is the dialectic, and the dialectic derives from Hegel as concentrated by Feuerbach, Marx, various neo-Marxists, Marcuse, the black feminists. And here we see it arising, quoted in quoted in its almost original form, frankly, uh, in, in, in a call for revolutionary politics. It requires a revolutionary di dialectic and a perfect ideology in Bell Hooks, 1984. Just to give you another, I mean, I've got several more examples we're going to read through. I'm sorry. I need you to understand that this is really what's happening in the world today. If you understand the woke, you have to understand the dialectic. Kimberly Crenshaw, the creator of intersectionality, one of the founders of critical race theory, actually the person who named critical race theory, also thinks dialectically. This becomes very obvious in her chapter that's titled Unmasking Colorblindness in the Law, Lessons from the Formation of Critical Race Theory. It's the third chapter in a volume that she edited in 2019 titled Seeing Race Again. What a wonderful concept she's driving here. Becoming Racists. 
But Seeing Race Again is the title of the book, 2019 book. So she wrote this essay essay as a chapter for the book. And she writes in there, this essay, this is the beginning of the essay, revisits the history of how critical race theory, CRT, emerged as an intellectual response to colorblindness in the context of institutional struggles over the scope of equality and the content of legal education. It exemplifies how in the aftermath of a groundbreaking challenge to the social order, institutional actors from across the political spectrum embraced a gradualist strategy of integration premised on the assumption that the colorblind meritocracy stood outside of the economic and racial power. The emergence and continuing significance of CRT in relation to colorblind ideology is a reflection of the cross-institutional traveling of resistance. The conditions of possibility that seed insurgent knowledge and the the continuity of these dialectics in the contemporary era. So she's thinking dialectically. So I don't want to keep belaboring this point, but since I mentioned with bell hooks especially, that, and it's so important within education, that the idea of teaching this dialogue, so we have this engine of, of, of the left. I've got it up through critical race theory and black feminism now, all the way back to Hegel, through Marx, Feuerbach, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the neo-Marxists, Miracusa. You know, we see um, Adorno defect from it after he writes Dialectic of Enlightenment with Horkheimer. And then all the, with a straight line, like, Hegel to the young Hegelians, those are first progressives in this line of thought, becoming Marxists. So then the old left arises out of that. The old left gives way, gives way to the new left. The new left is the neo-Marxist left under Marcuse. Uh, and this new left is dialectically driven. And this new left gives rise to the black feminism movement and these other radicalist movements that we're seeing now. And they are dialectically driven all the way up to a book in 2019 where Kimberly Crenshaw, the founder of Critical Race Theory, is saying that the dialectics is... Uh, is crucial to what she's saying. And along the way, we have Bell Hooks, who inspired Kimberly Crenshaw, for example, writing and quoting somebody who basically lays out the exact Hegelian vision in the modern day. So this is all extremely important. We now have that this is the underlying operating system of the left, I think, is a continuous old left, new left, or young Hegelian, really, to old left, which is Marxism, to new left, which is neo-Marxism, to woke left, continuity, but it's also crucial in education. This is how they teach it. This is the, what their goal is to teach children to think dialectically because that's the engine of their worldview. That's how they think about the world. So it is the heart of the critical pedagogy project, which is the critical theory applied to both the theory of education and the contents of education. So the dominant mode of education in the West today seeks to teach our children the Hegelian dialectical mode because that's the underlying operating system of how they how leftism operates in our society and they have totally dominated the institution of education following Gramsci's indication that education is one of the five pillars of culture that must be infiltrated and overturned from within so here reading from Isaac Gotsman's The Critical Turn in Education which was a book from 2015 where he talks about probably the most influential critical pedagogist his name is Henry Giroux he writes students argued Giroux and this is quoting Drew, need to learn how to be able to move outside of their own frame of reference so that they can question the legitimacy of a given fact, concept, or issue. He wrote that in 1978. Now to Gottsman. Furthermore, he contended marshalling the support of Marxist literary theorist Frederick Jameson students, quote, this is quoting Giroux, have to learn how to perceive the very essence of what they're examining by placing it critically within a system of relationships that give it meaning. In other words, students must be taught to think dialectically, rather than in an isolated and compartmentalized fashion. For Giroux, it was important that contextualization of information be embedded in a pedagogy that takes seriously the social relationships of the classroom.
this goes way back in education, however. Um, you can read from John Dewey. He was a very progressive education reformer, very influential in our current education system. He was in the late 19th century when he wrote, in again, perfect Hegelian fashion, quote, the state is then the completed objective spirit. That's like <laughs> straight Hegel. The externalized reason of man, it reconciles the principle of law, law and liberty, not by bringing some truce or external harmony between them, but by making the law the whole of the prevailing interest and controlling motive of the individual. And so we haven't really touched on Hegel's statism yet, but that's going to be relevant. I just wanted to drop that in there because it's tied into critical education. So even going back a hundred, more than a hundred years, so this is being written before 1900, but just before 1900, we have this idea that the Hegelian view of the state, <laughs> the completed objective spirit, that's so freaking Hegelian, is that's uh, Hegel's metaphysics. And the way that you get to that completed objective spirit the externalized reason of man is through the dialectic. So we have the whole dialectical project here. Um, there's a link, by the way, not just, I mentioned bell hooks inserting critical race theory into critical pedagogy. Critical pedagogy is rising up. There's another guy before who is very important, but less influential than Giroux before him named Michael Apple. Michael Apple repeatedly, if you read Gottsman, you'll find out that he repeatedly talks about the need for dialectic and education. But then later, even today, even very recently, we can see the, the, the insertion of this kind of dialectical line of thought, but importantly, neo-Marxism, which we now know is based on the dialectical thought into education. So we read from in Alison Bailey's paper, uh, Tracking Privilege Preserving Epistemic Pushback, which appeared in, in the classrooms or something, the exact title. Um, it was published in Hypatia in 2017, Hypatia being the leading feminist philosophy journal that very much so dips into um, critical pedagogy. It was the target of two of our fake papers, one of which was a critical pedagogy paper. But this brings very to the front that critical pedagogy is based very deeply also, not just in Giroux's belief that the dialectic should be brought into the classroom, but also that neo-Marxism itself should be brought into the classroom. What does she write in 2017? Alison Bailey, quote, the critical thinking tradition is concerned primarily with epistemic adequacy, which is a fancy way of saying knowing what you're talking about. To be critical is to show good judgment in recognizing when arguments are faulty, assertions lack evidence, truth claims appeal to unreliable sources or concepts are sloppily crafted and applied. That's true. For critical thinkers, the problem is that people fail to, quote, examine the assumptions, commitments, and logic of daily life. The basic problem is irrational, illogical, and unexamined living, end quote. Well, if you read Marcuse, you know what she's talking about. She doesn't cite Marcuse. She's not quoting Marcuse there. But you're not living that unless you're a critical theorist, according to Marcuse. So unless you're approaching the world from critical theory, you're stuck in irrational, illogical, unexamined living that fails to examine the assumptions, commitments, and logic of daily life. You're caught up in his so-called heteronymous interests that I've mentioned in many podcasts so far. Okay, so here she's framing out that critical thinking isn't really critical thinking, which is exactly what Marcuse does in Neo-Marxism. In this tradition, Bailey continues, sloppy claims can be identified and fixed by learning to apply the tools of formal and informal logic correctly. Critical pedagogy begins from a different set of assumptions rooted in the neo-Marxian literature on critical theory commonly associated with the Frankfurt School. Not really hedging anything there, is she? Here, the critical learner is someone who is empowered and motivated to seek justice and emancipation. That's what Marcuse says. Critical pedagogy regards the claims that students make in response to social justice issues not as propositions to be assessed for their truth value, but expressions of power that function to reinscribe and perpetuate social inequalities. Its mission is to teach students ways of identifying and mapping how power shapes our understandings of the world. 
This is the first step in toward resisting and transforming social injustices. In other words, the dialectic, where theory has to be whited to practice to generate praxis. By interrogating the politics of knowledge production, Bailey writes, this tradition also calls into question the uses of the accepted critical thinking toolkit to determine epistemic adequacy. To extend Audre Lorde's classic metaphor, not that classic, it was written in 1984, but anyway, the tools of the critical thinking tradition, for example, validity, soundness, conceptual clarity, cannot dismantle the master's house. They can temporarily beat the master at his own game, but they can never bring about any enduring structural change. They fail because the critical thinker's toolkit is commonly invoked in particular settings at particular times to reassert power. Those adept with the tools often use them to restore an order that assures their comfort. They can be habitually invoked to defend our epistemic home terrains. So critical pedagogy for her, for Alison Bailey, is based in neo-Marxism. She echoes Marcuse virtually perfectly, and she's talking about teaching people to think in terms of ways that are going to be emancipatory and empowering, in perfect line with the dialectical process outlined by Marcuse. So in education, we see this again and again and again and again, now under critical pedagogy. So we're not just satisfied that the leftism isn't just satisfied, I should say, to use the, the, the dialectical method as its operating system. It must install that operating system in children, which is why I've said repeatedly that the woke don't use education to indoctrinate. They use education to program and reprogram. They're not teaching you to accept a particular doctrine uncritically, although that is happening as well. They're teaching you to think in a particular way, and that way is dialectically. Again, we heard that explicitly not metaphorically, not anything explicitly from Henry Giroux, the, the considered the father of critical pedagogy. When he, what he said is, in other words, students must be taught to think dialectically. So that is the object here. That is what's going on. And I could go on with this at length over and over and over again, quoting from luminaries across this dialectical left, if you will, the inheritors of young Hegelian thought, including Marx, down through the neo-Marxists, through the leading lights of critical race theory, and every other critical social justice theory today. And I could quote from them again and again and again, showing explicitly, not hedging a single word, that the dialectical mode of thought is how they think about everything. It is their underlying operating system. It is the heart of their interrelated worldviews, and it comes from Hegel the first to consciously apply it, in the words of uh, the Marxists on Marxist.org. So a couple more quick points that finalize my case on this, and then I'll move on to the metaphysical part, which is the second more difficult case to make. I think I've really hammered this one in. First, recall that we began by reading um, from the book Critical Race Theory and Introduction, which ended with And So the Dialectic Progresses. I want to draw your attention back to that. So if you recall, that little piece was framed out in terms of this so-called essentialism versus anti-essentialism philosophical program. And I brought that up. I mentioned that that was important. And it's the way that critical, the, the, the section in which that phrase appears is in a section in the book, or is a section in the book where it's in analyzing how critical race theory interacts with the ideas of essentialism versus anti-essentialism. But these two, essentialism and anti-essentialism, are clearly thesis-antithesis, right? It's thesis-antithetical in its construction. Essentialism versus its negation, anti-essentialism. So what, then, is the woke synthesis that's forwarded, say, by critical race theory? It's in the critical race theory book. 
but also by the other theories of critical social justice, the answer is structural determinism. This is a very important concept. I've talked about it in some other podcasts. I'm not going to elaborate on it too much here, but it is the structure of society. It's the hypothesis. Structural determinism is the, the doctrine, really, that the structure of society determines something like an essential lived experience. That nevertheless, it's not essentialist because it nevertheless hides within a social constructivist mode of thought. So race under critical race theory is a social construct. So race can't be essential to the person. So it dodges essentialism. But they claim that race, and this is explicitly articulated by Crenshaw and many others, that race is sociopolitically imposed by the whites and the allegedly white supremacist and racist society, so that the lived experience of being a particular race in that system becomes essential. So race is not essential in the sense that they are social constructivists, thus anti-essentialist, but the experience of being a race in a particular power structure where that race is imposed by that power structure does define what it means to be that kind of a person, of that identity category. We hear that again and again in black feminist thought. We just heard it from, from Patricia Collins over and over and over again about black women, right? So your lived experience becomes essential. So via the dialectic, critical race theory gets to be race essentialist while claiming it's race anti-essentialist. And so it's really hard to pin down whether or not it's race essentialist or not, because it's taken essentialism and anti-essentialism, collided them in the dialectic, and produced this new thing that's hard to fight called structural determinism. And structural determinism is the logic behind how they organize society. When they say things like, for example, that positionality must be consciously engaged or intentionally engaged, that's a Robin DiAngelo, it appears all, the, all over the place in Robin DiAngelo's writing, that's what she's talking about. Structural determinism has to be taken into account. Structural determinism allows them to be essentialist while claiming anti-essentialism, and it keeps people from being able to pin down what they're actually doing and why and how they're actually racist. It's uh, by claiming a imposed lived experience that people aren't allowed to buck. So they hit a dialectical synthesis of these two ideas. And that's what's going on when the so the dialectic progresses into yet another deeper intersectional group in that book. That's what's what's being talked about. And again, of course, again, I draw your attention to the word progress, progresses. That's the idea behind Hegel is that dialectic is constantly progressing through an arc of history. So this is still the operating system. And finally, on this part of the podcast anyway, we're going to keep going. I'll note that the entire concept, I've kind of hinted at this already, of intersectionality as framed out by Kimberly Crenshaw is also just a huge dialectical machine. I did a podcast series on uh, Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins her most famous paper. So people who want to know more about how I identify the dialectic in intersectionality itself can go listen to that and hear me develop the thought there. That's really where I developed it the first time. But in its core essence, intersectionality turns critique inward into itself, really. It takes already so-called marginalized activist groups and dialectically attacks them. They attack themselves with their own tool. Feminists have to confront their racism. Black liberationists have to confront their sexism and misogyny. And also everybody's going to have to confront their homophobia or whatever. The goal that is stated there is to create solidarity. But if you read Marcuse's essay on tolerance, section four, it's a four-part essay, is just solidarity. Solidarity is the objective that is said to create liberation. So this is all we're seeing here is the same dialectical neo-Marxist engine. So solidarity becomes the uh, dialectical synthesis of these competing, remember where uh, Patricia Collins was talking about the competing forms of identity and their oppressions, intersectionality becomes the synthesis. 
of these competing forms of oppression and the dialectic of oppression and activism that she keeps talking about. Intersectionality becomes the synthesis there. Um, of course, Marcuse also says that we have to biologically change mankind to want and need liberation, and that, that will actually be done by changing them biologically to want and need solidarity to one another, to create a whole new kind of man, liberated man, kind of an echo of the new Soviet man, that will be able to tolerate and usher in liberation. But um, Marcuse's eugenics is another topic for another day. The point here, though, is the, the dialectical critique, really what we're going to see is the Alfhavender Kultur, at the heart of the leftist project gets turned inward under intersectionality, directed from one identity political group to another to create solidarity, allegedly, across all of the so-called marginalized identities by evoking their guilt that they're oppressed and therefore that they're ignoring the oppressions of other people and need to be more sensitive to that. And intersectionality, therefore, becomes the synthesis of the various otherwise competing forms of systemic oppression. So if you see critical, say, race theory, queer theory, etc., as means to tear everything down, intersectionality becomes the means to synthesize and put them back together into a new cobbled together upside down pyramid hierarchy, which is exactly what people are perceiving. And that's where it lives. That's why it is. Intersectionality is the dialectical synthesis of all of the comp competing forms of so-called systemic oppression. And it gives an analytical framework, allegedly, for working that out and establishing a hierarchy, which is the inversion of what Patricia Collins called the matrix of domination that describes how intersectionality works. So it, of course, though, intersectionality has to be organized this way. Why? Because the dialectic is the operating system of the left. It's driven by Alfhaben, just like we're about to turn to. Uh, it's the, been the core of progressive, therefore dialectical, thought and the dialectical progressive left's project for almost 200 years. That's the point I wanted to drive home with this first half ever since Hegel unleashed it into, in its uh, applicable form into the world. So, of course, intersectionality would be organized that way. So, to summarize, the dialectic is the operating system of, the, of, of leftism. and has been since the young Hegelians took it up, probably in the 1820s and 30s, right up through to today, so 200 years. Just incidentally, as an aside, the concept of manifest destiny, which is often charged by the left as being this catastrophe that destroyed, you know, Native Americans and all these lands and blah, 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 turns out that that wasn't exactly a conservative uh, meta narrative. It was championed by the so-called young Democrats. The young Democrats were the American parallel to the young Hegelians. They had, they had adopted a lot of the Hegelian progressive philosophy of the young Hegelians. These young Democrats use these ideas, including Manifest Destiny in the United States through the 1830s and 1840s, to what a lot of people see as calamity, but not necessarily. And I guess kind of as a final capstone to that line, Stephen Douglas, who famously lost the debate in the election to Abraham Lincoln, was an avowed Hegelian in the young Hegelian mode as well. So just something to kind of contextualize that period of history for you. This was happening in the United States, not just Europe, in terms of thought and activism. So I think I've established that the essential core of the, the operating system of the left is the dialectic. This has been from Hegel and the young Hegelians all the way forward through the Marxian old left to the neo-Marxian new left to the contemporary woke left. And this is the engine that drives all of their thought and activism, the dialectic, which draws back to Hegel. How does it work, though? The tool is called Aufheben. It's a German word. It means to keep and yet to destroy at the same time. 
It's a very complicated term. I've talked about Aufheben a little bit before. I'm going to develop Aufheben here a little bit. But to give you an idea that Hegel himself was fascinated by this idea of Aufheben, keeping and destroying. He writes in his book, The Science of Logic, or just Science of Logic, Aufheben constitutes one of the most important concepts in philosophy. Aufheben, he says, has a twofold meaning in the language. On the one hand, it means to preserve, to maintain. And equally, it also means to cause to cease, to put an end to. It is a delight to speculative thought. Defined in the language words which have in themselves a speculative meaning. This was Hegel refer, er, talking about his, his fascination with the term Aufheben. Aufheben, I'm going to make the contention, is the negation process. It is the negative process. When, when Hegel say, lays out abstract, negative, concrete, it is the negative process. Or in other words, it could be the antithesis process. I gave this example in a recent video that I put out. I derived this from a friend of mine on Twitter. Um, brilliant observation in frustration by my friend Emmy, who pointed out that uh, she said that this is basically what you see on Twitter, but it's really more accurate to say is what you see from the dialectical aspects of Twitter. And this is a perfect example of Alfhaven. It's that, you know, I might say that the sky is blue and a straight negation of that would say, no, it's not blue. Or you maybe would negate by implication by saying it's green or it's red or it's some other color. But an Alfhaven would say, not at night, or maybe even not when it's raining. And so it has this feeling of deliberately missing the point. So you get to keep the blue, like you didn't actually tear down the blue, you get to keep it. But at the same time, you've torn down, you've abolished the concrete sense that the idea was right in the first place. So now you have to reach this synthetic view of the sky that's more complicated, that the sky is only blue during daylight hours in clear skies or something like this. That's a very good way to get a sense of how this dialectic proceeds to this concept of Aufheben and what Aufheben actually looks like in practice, according to the way that Hegel imagined it. And this is this kind of very annoying tool that the dialectic proceeds upon. Um, by the way, since he uses this word speculative over and over again, it's important to point out that Hegel was a speculative idealist as a type of philosopher. Speculative means looking into a mirror. Speculum is a mirror in Latin, and it sort of is what it means. And what, what Hegel meant by being speculative or what he means as a speculative idealist is that, that the way to understand ideas is to reflect upon them. And the purpose of reflecting upon the ideas is to recollect or remember what's already known in a very abstract sense. Or really, it's also to, to divine the concrete from facing the idea and its negation at the same time. So Alfhaven, in that it means keep and destroy at the same time, is speculative in that it contains this place where you have the thing and its opposite reflecting back on one another at the same time. So Alfhaven is, in a sense, what is it, an autological word that is Alfhavening itself. I, I don't know my German conjugation, so we're going to use German-English for that and say Alfhavening, which is totally wrong. Um, and I don't care. Uh, sorry, Germans. Uh, you guys can put it in the notes or whatever. Um, so this is this is going to be key to moving into the trajectory of Hegel's underlying metaphysics that we'll get to in, in the next part of the podcast or the, the development of the podcast. And that is that he has this metaphysical assumption that the particular can only be understood through the whole and speculation is going to be kind of how you're going to accomplish that. And so the recovery of the whole through a, pro a speculative thought process of reflection and recollection, remembering, is, is going to be able to be achieved through examining the particular and their antitheses through the dialectic. And that is the ultimate objective for Hegel of philosophy, aka 
reason, or in German, uh, Vernunft. So this makes Hegel, we have to point this out because we're going to come back to this a bunch of times later, hermetic. And hermetic means an alchemist. And that's his philosophical orientation because alchemy is achi- his alchemy is achieved through the dialectic. The dialectic is like the fire that heats the contents of ideas in its alembic and gives gives rise to their refined or synthetic uh, understanding. Alfhaben is the process that's going on, is the way in which ideas are to be refined alchemically, kept yet destroyed. That's where, where Marcuse is talking about peeling off the 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 power of of the current era so that the seed within can sprout that's a hermetic idea uh, hermeticists believe for example that gold seeds of gold exist in all the base metals so if you can just get the 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 base parts to peel away then the gold the seed of gold will sprout and blossom and the base metal will be transformed into gold that's a hermetic or an alchemical belief this is actually the underlying idea of Hegelian thought. So when we say that Hegelian thought is a hermetic or alchemical faith, that's actually what I'm talking about. And Alfhaven is the tool, keep but destroy, by which it's done. And of course, it's itself so-called speculative. So it's very also it's very important to realize that what, and we'll see this later on, um, that what Hegel actually means by speculative is having mystical content. It's mystical. It's mysticism. Speculative means mysticism. And so this is going to open the door to a lot of things for Hegel that he already was, like Hermeticism, alchemy, and in particular also Gnosticism, which is why all of these ideologies like critical race theory can be thought of as race Gnosticism, like people having a particular race because of their structurally determined lived experience have special insight under a doctrine of standpoint epistemology that gives them the ability to understand things and have racial knowledges, etc. That gives them special knowledge. That's Gnosticism. That's racial or ethnic Gnosticism. And this is why, because the Hegelian faith is itself Gnostic, and it's open to being Gnostic because it's speculative, by which is meant mystical. And the people who know the secret are the Gnostics. The people who understand the mysticism are the Gnostics, the ones that have the special knowledge. And that special knowledge for Hegel is defined in what he calls reason or Vernunft. So we're going to see this developed uh, as we go on into his metaphysics. But I really just wanted to drop this here to reinforce the idea that Hegel is already thinking just in his comment on what Alfhaven means, which is a very fascinating and important concept central to his dialectic. This reinforces the idea that he's thinking metaphysically and he's thinking in terms of his metaphysics alchemically or hermetically about the progression of society. This is to also say then that it, since he's thinking mystically and Gnostically, he's thinking religiously, and the catechism of his religion is the, dialect, is the dialectic, which is driven by this odd concept, keeping and destroying, called Alfhaben in German. So, as a further aside, speculative, just kind of like dive into this a minute further, also taps into two features that we see all the way through Hegelianism, Marxism, Neo-Marxism, and Wokeism, which is that words are always given more than one meaning. We've already seen how that happens with, say, democracy and tolerance, for example, um, under Marcuse. And the dialectic is how that's achieved. So you're alchemically developing a second meaning to words so that you can talk in two ways at once. The people who understand this fancy new language, the so-called initiated priests, are the Gnostics. They understand something on a deeper way. They understand in, in modern parlance under these ideas the systemic way of thinking and understanding the world while everybody else understands the words and the various ideas and what's going on in another more simple way. And the other more simple way is not accessible to the Gnostic or to the 
is not accessible to the agnostics, the people who aren't given access to this way of thinking. So Alfhaven becomes a kind of paradigm example, a word that means its own opposite. Um, but this same kind of thought was taken up later by Marx under the words uh, for the term, for example, science. We could do it with democracy and tolerance also, as Marcuse did, but democracy certainly under Marxism. But Marx used science to mean scientific socialism very frequently. He claimed that socialism itself is scientific. Wissenschaftlicher uh, Sozialismus or something like this in German. I'm going to mess that up every time I have to say it throughout this whole thing. I think I got Wissenschaftlicher right, but maybe not. Licher, Licher, I don't know German. So the Marxism and communism that he labeled as scientific and everything else, pseudoscientific or science, are really pseudoscientific or scientistic, but they actually present themselves as being scientific. So you have this reversed meaning game played through the dialectic. Communists did the same thing like we talked about before with ideas like freedom, democracy, tolerance, which they insisted require communism as a precondition, something the neo-Marxists also argued, and Marcuse we saw, argued vigorously for the, in their day, and the woke still do now. Um, we also see this tendency for so-called speculative meanings that invite Gnosticism and mysticism in their understanding, all the way down to what everything going on in the woke in prolifer uh, proliferation right now. I've documented some of these in tremendous detail on the social justice encyclopedia I'm keeping on new discourses. Um, you could talk about it within like racism, meaning two things. You could talk about it in diversity, inclusion, etc., uh, segregation, desegregation. All of these things, decolonialization is actually colonizing the curriculum, for example. These are all key examples of the sophistic double, like sophistry, doublespeak characteristic of Hegelian ideologies, um, which these are actually kind of just one genus in the broader order of sophistry and Gnostic abuses. So here's it's a very big picture kind of thing. Uh, just to kind of drop that in there as an aside, but we can see the doublespeak clearly under Alfhaven. We can turn to Lenin, who was big on Alfhaven. He said for, you know, for him, Alfhaven, he was talking about sublation technically, which is a typical translation, maybe a vulgar translation of Alfhaven. He says it means to supersede, put an end to, but simultaneously maintain and preserve. So you've got this kind of doublespeak there. Lenin's promoting this idea of Alfhaven. Marcuse talks about it um, in his essay on the affirmation character, or on the affirmative, I should say, character of culture, which he put, uh, published in Culture and Society in 1937, Herbert Marcuse wrote, it is the real miracle of the affirmative culture. People can feel happy even if they are not. That's one of his big themes, that people are actually miserable, but they think they're happy. You know, uh, I guess you can, you, you can own nothing and be happy. If the culture has entered a Western thought only as an affirmative culture, the abolition of its affirmative character will act as an abolition of culture as such, where the German he wrote for abolition of culture is Aufhebung der Kultur, where Aufhebung is a uh, is uh, the noun version of Aufheben. So Aufheben der Kultur, by the way, seeing it pop up here from Marcuse in 37, Aufheben der Kultur is a phrase that actually arose much earlier. Uh, with another communist thinker about two decades earlier, um, namely the enormously aggrieved Georgi Lukács, or I guess it's just George Lukács, he's not a girl, I'm trying to get that right, who saw it as a necessary goal, Alfhabender culture, the destruction of culture, the abolishment of culture, saw that as a necessary goal to achieve the kind of revolution, meaning a communist revolution, that had just failed for him in Hungary. He saw that Western civilization was the problem. We had to tear down Western culture to achieve the revolutions that he was craving as a as a as a communist. And the pathway must be to destroy Western culture. Alfhaben der Kultur. 
and he first discussed this idea in an essay from 1920. The first time that the phrase Aufhebender Kultur appears in the communist literature comes from 1920. And the essay's title is Who Will Save Us from Western Civilization by George Lukács. This line of thought, then Aufhebender Kultur, becomes kind of a genesis point where I've talked before where Lukács and Antonio Gramsci and Max Horkheimer, for example, met in Vienna. I think that was in 1923, so just after this. This is obviously how they're thinking to destroy the culture. And then we have the Frankfurt School coming out of this between Lukács and Horkheimer going back uh, to Frankfurt. And we have Gramsci going to prison a few years later and writing the prison notebooks, which become the basis of cultural Marxism that are literally to infiltrate the cultural hegemonic sphere by entering the pillars of culture and abolishing them from within by establishing a counter-hegemony uh, counter or a counter-culture within them and having it burst out uh, through the dialectical process. So this, this is where all of this kind of came from. And that, of course, redirected the goal of the Hegelian and Marxian thought that had been developing up to that point, 1920-1926 is what we're talking about right now, toward attacking culture, culture rather than attacking ideas or material. Uh, materialism, I guess, or attacking material uh, facets of life like economics, particularly. So, as can be identified, you know, as you could hear in the examples we gave earlier from Marcuse, this has been core to this Alphabender culture has been core to the leftist program more or less ever since. Their goal is to tear down Western culture, especially popular culture that makes people happy because as, as Marcuse noted, you can be happy, you can be miserable but think you're happy. He talks about this in like almost everything he writes. It's all through one-dimensional man, it's in repressive tolerance, it's in essay and liberation. All these people think that they're happy but they're really miserable and we got to use these critical methods to show them how miserable they are. As for Lukács, by the way, he's not a very pleasant guy. Um, here's what he has to say about what Alf Haben is really about in the same essay, Who Will Save Us from Western Civilization from 1920. He writes, in the last analysis, the communist social order means the Alf Hebung of the economy as an end in itself. This is all the more true because the side because this side of the transformation, the alphabung of the economy as an end in itself, cannot express itself in the surface appearances of life after the seizure of power. Domination over the economy, that is what the socialist economy is, means the alphabung of the autonomy of the economy. So destroying the economy for Lukács is the socialist end in itself. And the reason, according to Lukács, is that it enables the seizure of power and thus the domination of the economy, thus society. And that's what the social, socialist economy actually is. He explicitly says that in 1920, and who will save us from Western civilization? So he advocates that, that all of this abolishment, this destruction, of, uh, destruction be turned toward culture rather than the economy so that the, so the seizure of the culture of Western civilization can be accomplished. It, that culture can then be, Western Western culture can then be destroyed. That would be an end in itself, such that it will affect the seizure of power to affect domination, and that is the cultural Marxist project. That is what the leftist project has been about through the entire cultural Marxist, neo-Marxist era, uh, leading up at least until the the very recent era. But I think that the woke is actually a continuation of this, and Alf Haben der Kultur is their project today in many serious ways. And this is Hegel's idea weaponized. Marcuse uh, echoed the, sen the sentiment uh, in an interview he did in 1969 on television, remarking that he only, quote, wants to designate what has to be overcome, which in German is, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this probably, Überwunden, 
without entering the speculation about the end result. There's no interest in looking at the end result. We just have to designate what has to be overcome. That's where he said in the essay on liberation, if we can just tear away the problems of society, the powers of society, the injustices of society, the seed of the true better future, the liberated future will bloom and blossom and come out. This concurs with Marxist critical philosophy that didn't seek to install its own ideology at all, but rather just to tear down the existing capitalist economy and figure it out from there. This is why I did a whole podcast on communism doesn't know how. It also justifies Lukács' bad attitude in general. But generally, communism doesn't know how because it believes that the perfected society lives underneath the flaws in culture. And if you can just tear down all of the so-called bad aspects from their perspective of culture, then the perfected society will blossom out of this, will grow out of this. And this is a alchemical, a hermetic idea. Okay, so Alf Habender Kultur is the explanation for most of the, le- the woke left's actions today, too. Why do we tear down statues? Why do they get dumped in lakes? Why are they being defaced? Why are they being graffitied, etc.? Because they are cultural icons that represent something about the culture, so you have to abolish the culture, Alf Habender Kultur. Why are we destroying the idea of men and women, or the, the, the worthiness of heterosexuality or having children? Why are we calling mothers birthing persons? Alfhabender Kultur, the cultural institution of the family, is one of the five that Gramsci noted has to be destroyed, infiltrated and destroyed. Alfhabender Kultur. Why are we canceling Dr. Seuss and damn near every other thing? Alfhabender Kultur. These are cultural. I did a podcast about Dr. Seuss. These are pieces of the culture that people can relate to one another. They understand one another based on whether it's old movies, whether it's old cartoons, whether it's friends, whether the show Friends, I mean, whether it's Seinfeld, whether it's Dr. Seuss, whether it's uh, Huckleberry Finn, whatever it is. All of these things have to be abolished because whether it's to kill a mockingbird, because they are cultural touch points that let us relate to one another. So Alf Habender culture. Why are we painting Black Lives Matter on streets and putting it on the big green monster during the baseball game? Alf Habender culture. Why are we changing the names of schools for people who allegedly were connected to uh, historical evils? Alf Habender culture. Why are we decolonizing the curriculum? Which is really colonizing the curriculum, by the way. Alf Habender culture. Why did Ghostbusters do an all-women reboot or Star Wars Episode 7 just be an inversion remaking Episode 4? All Alf Habender culture. The idea is to break down those cultural touch points and make it so that we have to now argue. We can't talk about Ghostbusters without talking about this new Ghostbusters reboot. We can't understand Episode 4 of Star Wars without having to compare it against the woke remake in Episode 7. Alf Habender culture. It makes it impossible to have cultural references that are solid and universal. So Alf Haben is the tool that's like the, the heat in the fire. Dialectic is the fire that's boiling the alembic, the, the alchemy <laughs> alembic to, to purify society, to take away all those negative pieces, to purify everything so that the seed of the perfected society as Marcuse had it can grow out. And the dialectic has therefore been the operating system of leftists in a clear line, twisting and concentrating itself all the way back at least to the young Hegelians who derived it directly from Hegel in a progressive fashion last 200 years. So that's mission number one. I know we're almost at two hours or maybe past two hours. That's mission number one. The operating system of the left is fundamentally the dialectic, and the dialectic is credited to Hegel. But there's something more that has to be understood. This has to be understood as religious. It's not just philosophy. This is a religion. This is a faith tradition. And it's engaged in with the same intensity of a faith. And that's because Hegel had a metaphysics underneath what he was doing. And that metaphysics, even through Marx, 
in his dialectical materialism has survived. Hegel, in fact, is what's known as a theosophist, which is to say he has forwarded some religious philosophy or speculation about the nature of reality and the soul that's based on mystical insights into the nature of God. Like I said, his speculation is mysticism. We're going to back that up here in a second. For Hegel, the idea of God is what he called the absolute, or sometimes the idea or the absolute idea, which is what you get when the ideas of the world become perfected and aware of their own perfection, which is achieved through the process of the dialectic progressing history. That's the historicism that Engels praised so strongly in Hegel's philosophy, even as he complained about Hegel's dialectic itself and its inapplicability. Marx had this same idea too, but his metaphysics was a kind of scientistic, again, not scientific materialism, which he called dialectical materialism. I'm going to mess it up again. We're going to go for the German Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, scientific socialism in English at any rate, which isn't science at all. So remember what Marx had said. This is one of the first quotes that I read in this podcast with Hegel, and I'm inserting the names a little bit for clarity. With Hegel, the dialectic is standing on its head. It must be turned right side up again if you would discover the rational kernel within the mystical shell. So this mysticism is key to Hegel's metaphysics. Marx thought he was getting rid of it, but he actually isn't, as we're going to uncover. So the essence of the essence of Hegel's speculative idealism is a mystical shell. It turns out, as I've been saying, a hermetic, alchemical metaphysic based in mysticism and Gnosticism, in other words, knowing the secrets of reality or of, 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 of God or whatever. Marx rejected the mysticism, or so he thought, in favor of materialism, dialectical materialism, but because dialectical materialism, communism doesn't know how, because he retained that Hegelian drive as a kind of very potent imaginator of new ideas in society, and he didn't know how they were going to get to communism that was just going to happen, he didn't really get away from it. Uh, he was still trying to drive the progress of history. Marx's, Marx and Engels were fans of, uh, of Hegel's historicism, which was predicated off of his, uh, his metaphysic, and he's still trying to drive this. So Marx tr claimed he got rid of the mysticism through turning it into dialectical materialism, but he didn't. Maybe, I mean, maybe he did an, He did just enough, I guess is the way to put it, because this is the primary reason why the U.S. Supreme Court rejected the claim that communism or Marxism constitutes a religion. It's because it's materialist. It doesn't have a god or whatever. And this is despite what both the father of cultural Marxism, Antonio Gramsci, and defected Communist Party uh, USA leader, Dr. Belladad, both had to say about it. Gramsci said, and I quote, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity with overwhelm being in the Uberwunden sense that we just talked about a minute ago, had he been writing in German rather than in Italian. Bella Dodd had it this way. She was one of the leaders of the U.S. Communist Party. Uh, and in 1953, she, she testified to the House, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, and she explained how we have to fight communism differently and what communism's ideas and goals are. And she said in that testimony that communism is like a religion. President Eisenhower said the other day, but it is religion without a God. If you believe strongly in communism, it is your duty to bring it into every phase of your life. Communism is a way of life, and it is almost like a religion. It becomes a part of you. It affects your entire thinking. It affects your attitude toward your students, toward your government, to affects your attitude toward things that are happening day by day. Most communist college professors begin by being very much interested in their students, and if they have a communist philosophy, they pass it on. Okay? So... 
communism is very much like a religion, right? This is what a, one of the leaders of the Communist Party was saying in 1953. So though Marx rejected Hegel's mysticism, he had unreal he, he had such unrealistic and largely Hegelian beliefs about how history would progress and the material world would evolve that they could be considered somewhat mystical in their own right. His communism doesn't know how. You just peel away all the problems and the perfect society will emerge. The consciousness he believed would awaken, the revolution would come, there would be the class consciousness of the proletariat, the revolution would come, proletarian revolution, the managed state economy would then emerge and take over in a state of socialism, and then would eventually, through the dialectical materialist process, realize its own redundancy, and a communist utopia would emerge from this as all of the, as the dialectical materialism purified all of the bad ideas out of the state. Marx was really just an applied young Hegelian. He applied young Hegelianism by dropping the overt mysticism while keeping all of the social alchemy. So the core, the alchemical core, is still present in Marx, and that derived from Hegel and his metaphysics, which is key to understanding what's going on. So Marxists kept alive the religious furor, not just for communism, but also all of its Hegelian roots. In the Hegel for Beginners section, for example, of the Marxist Internet Ar Archive, they write gushingly of their intellectual progenitor, meaning Hegel, who was ultimately one of Marx's inspirations. They write, reading Hegel gives one a sense that the movement of thought will coincide with a vision of harmony that awaits us at the end of the whole process, the end of history. Every serious reader of Hegel can bear witness to the intoxication of such moments. Intoxication. That's exactly what I'm talking about, and this is where the communism doesn't know how faith-based part comes in. Marx derived that from Hegel, maintained it in his own vision, which was then readily taken up by his followers, and then evolved into neo-Marxism and eventually wokeism. The postmodernists kind of lost faith, if you will. Uh, the neo-Marxists, so thus the woke, have retained, like I said, this thought. They brought it back into a more mystical frame by abandoning the this, this, this solid material side of this and focusing instead on culture, which I'm going to insist in Hegelian form is on Geist what Hegel called Geist or spirit. This religious zeal, though, is palpable. For example, when you read Marcuse talking about liberation or when you read Alison Bailey talking about how she abuses her students, it's obvious in all of the major works of the 1960s from Marcuse, his earlier Eros and Civilization, where he waxes poetic almost about how a certain sexual liberation, it's clear what he's talking about, sexual liberation, freeing the Eros, which is subordinated by the demands of consumer and uh, capitalist culture to do productive work through something like the Protestant work ethic. Your sexual drives are subordinated, your your id is subordinated, and rather than being able to find healthy expressions, you, you feel like you're happy in a society where you're not, but if you could just be liberated sexually, you'd be free of all this. This is why I said before that reading Marcuse, you get the... In, at least in Eros and Civilization, you get the impression that he just wants to have orgies a lot, which when you look at him, is totally gross. But anyway, his goal was to, in that book, was to, mar to marry Marx and Freud philosophically, and it's a forced marriage if I've ever heard of one. But all this pulls us back to Hegel again. So let's go back to Hegel. Let's get into his metaphysic a little bit, but first his goals. Hegel really was driven very religiously, in fact, to try to create a metaphysical faith system for a Germany that wasn't going to rely on what he believed was the Orientalism, the intrusion of Christianity, which was a Middle Eastern religion unbecoming of, of Germanic uh, peoples and pride. So he believed that he could develop a new metaphysic, a new religion in the German folk identity. 
and he wanted to reinstate this folk identity and this folk religion. He was also very pro-Germany. Uh, you can read that, for example, if you read where he's been analyzed by Ve uh, Benedict Viviano, where is written in its classic form, Hegel's philosophy of history concludes that Prussia is the present and permanent incarnation of the Holy Spirit, and that it is God's will that Prussia should conquer and govern the world, or so was understood. Such an understanding led to the First World War. I would say it probably led to the second one, too. Um, Hitler was a Hegelian, <laughs> turns out. Uh, his, his trajectory was a little bit different, um, more kind of through the, the, the thoughts of um, Heidegger. But anyway, Hegel wanted to retain his metaphysics. He wanted his metaphysics to give the Germans back a sense of national identity and pride and to perfect the German state. This turned out to be expressed in a way that went pretty badly wrong, at least twice in the 20th century, and that was all done on the back of broadly Hegelian projects. People who picked up Hegel led to the First and Second World Wars in their German pride. Also as a speculative idealist, coming back to that, Hegel's very centered on the ways that ideas shape society and defined and as a, as a result, he defined a systematic philosophy, which is not that far off from a systematic theology once you understand his underlying motivations, or systematic theosophy, I should say, as he's a theosophist, that approaches how ideas are supposed to be formed, refined, understood, and eventually incorporated into society. That's his applicable side, and the dialectic was the engine. He wanted to also analyze how this is supposed to occur, speculation, and mysticism is how it was to be approached. So, for example, in his lectures that he gave in 1827, Hegel states, quote, As a whole, the mystical is everything speculative, or whatever is concealed from the understanding. And in his lectures on the philosophy of religion in 1824, uh, Hegel speaks of the so-called uh, Eleusinian mysteries, stating that the mystical is the speculative what lies within. So, like I said, when he says speculative, like we saw with Alf Haben, he means mystical. In the Encyclopedia Logic, uh, Hegel writes that it should be mentioned here that the meaning of the speculative is to be understood as being the same as what is used in earlier times. Uh, it's called the mystical. He also states, and this is kind of very important, we're going to focus on this next, that the Trinity is called the mystery of God. Its content is mystical, that is, speculative. And this bit about the Trinity is going to be really important to understanding his metaphysics. As a speculative idealist who was grappling with the ideas of his time and challenging the idea of Christianity, which he saw as an Orientalist intrusion into the German folk arena. So at the center of Hegel's metaphysics then, as a speculative idealist, are the ideas of society. So this is we're going to lay some groundwork for this and then move into this Trinitarian thing. So in particular for him, the absolute idea, which represents the culmination and kind of actualization of all ideas in a perfected form. So let's turn back to our friends at Marxist.org, and we'll see that this is actually explicitly a metaf metaphysical conception of what ideas are. So they write, the absolute idea, this is the entry on absolute idea, by the way, is both the apex and foundation of the philosophical system of Hegel. It includes all the stages of logic leading up to it is the process of development with all of its stages and transitions. The absolute idea, or world spirit, Weltgeist in German, plays the same kind of role for Hegel as a deity, 
quote, history is the idea clothing itself with the form of events. That's in the philosophy of right, section 346, according to these guys at Marxist.org. And they continue, and Marx rejects the need for any such concept since history is the product of people, not the other way around. Like absolute truth, knowledge of the absolute idea is an unattainable ideal representing the whole of nature which has developed to the point where it is conscious of itself, where the concept of nature developed to such a degree of concreteness that it has returned to itself, recollected itself, if you will, an absolutely comprehensive, practical, and concrete concept of the world. Hegel defines the absolute idea as the, quote, unity of the theoretical idea and the practical idea. The theoretical idea is the completed notion or concrete concept of the world or object, the practical idea is the activity expressing this concept, practice. The unity of the two means fully conscious practice, people acting in true accord with their own nature. So, for whatever rejecting of Hegel's mysticism that Marx did, you can see that his instruction to wed theory to praxis, we just ran into conscious practice, praxis. That's what Marx is talking about. His, his instruction to wed theory to practice, which is maintained to this day in both Marxism and neo-Marxism, and also it appears in the derived woke literature and activism, especially in critical pedagogy, education, and, and critical theory, these all demand that, a, that this element of social activism are present to qualify as a, as a critical theory. And all of this is readily derived from Hegel's idea of the theoretical idea and the practical idea. Remember when I said earlier that we were going to talk about the theoretical and the practical idea? So there's two ideas. The theoretical there's your thesis, meeting the practical where it runs into the world, there's your antithesis. And he sees the absolute as the final synthesis of the theoretical and the practical within his dialectical framework. And for Marx, praxis is the kind of materialist manifestation where, where this is occurring. It is the vehicle of the dialectic. So the metaphysical point here for Hegel is unavoidable. The absolute plays the role of deity, this is what the Marxists say about it, the whole of nature when it has developed to a point that it's conscious of itself and has so become concrete, in other words, synthetic in the dialectical language, and that it has returned to or recollected itself in speculative or mystical philosophy. So here we can turn to the Trinity and understand Hegel's views, the metaphysical spiral, as I would phrase it. So we'll begin by talking about a letter that Hegel wrote in 1816, where he remarks, quote, I stick to this idea that the spirit of time has given the order to move forward. This order has been obeyed, this being is moving forward irresistibly like an armored and compact phalanx, and with a movement as imperceptible as the sun's, through good and bad roads. Countless light troops against him and for him flank him everywhere. So what he's talking about here is that the idea that history or the spirit of time is mo moving forward irresistibly, and it's actually invincible. You can't change the course of history. It's going to do what it's going to do. It moves slowly and steadily, but like the sun, there's undeniable movement. You look now, you look later, it's clearly moved, but you'll never see it moving in any moment, unless maybe it's right along the horizon or something. And it also moves through both good and bad roads. In other words, it does things that are clearly going to be perceived as progress, and it's going to be is going to do things that are not perceived as progress, but they still count as progress because this is the progress of history. And it's going to be carried along by countless light troops, some of which are for and some of which are against. So you're going to have people arguing on both sides of what they believe is the right direction of history. So it could be that you have this great leader that people are supporting and he's not actually doing a great job. Or you could have this hor horrific dictator and people oppose this person. But this is just the march of history according to how Hegel conceived. And this is for him how the absolute, this perfected thing, moves along through an arc of time called 
history. And the goal is that the absolute is going to use the unfolding of history to come to understand itself. And in the instant the absolute understands itself as the absolute, history will end. In other words, we'll hit what you might call the eschaton, the end of the world in kind of, uh, kind of religious language. It's important to realize, though, that Hegel's thinking endlessly in triads, just like his dialectic. You have thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Technically, I guess that's Kant's, but you have abstract, negative, concrete, these triads. You have objective spirit, subjective spirit, absolute spirit, theory, practice, and their synthesis in what Marx called praxis, which is theoretically driven activism, which Pauline Christians would probably call evangelism. So when Marx says that we have to have theory wedded to praxis, what he's actually saying is you have to be an evangelist on behalf of Marxism and do activism, which would be the kinds of things that Christians tend to do, like tending to uh, the poor and acting in charity. But two other big triads we have to focus on are for, for Hegel are being and nothing. There's your thesis and antithesis, being and nothing. And his synthesis there, or the concrete, is becoming, being nothing and becoming form a Hegelian synthetic triad. Being, nothing, and becoming. And then another is ideas, nature, and geist. In other words, the ideas, the natural world as it manifests in the spirit. So these last two triads become crucial to understanding Hegelian metaphysics. This is because he had to grapple with, he, he had these because in particular he was grapple. I mean, being and nothing are pretty fundamental philosophical concepts, but they're also important if you're looking even in the Judeo-Christian context. But certainly um, the idea of these kind of trinities is very important to grapple with if he's going to grapple with the, tri- the, crini- tri- the Christian trinity and make sense of it as he wanted to because he wanted to synthesize out of the Orientalist Christian imposition, which is an antithesis for him to the German folk religion, and create a new metaphysic, a new systematic uh, theosophy for the German folk religion that he hoped for. He wanted to understand in particular, because he was kind of a, a, a monist in a sense, he wanted to understand in particular how Christianity was just manifest one, one narrow uh, manifestation of a more complete picture, what would have been called uh, in in the old hermetic tradition, a prisca theologica, a pristine theology, if you will, or a primordial theology. Uh, or he was also interested in the, the development. The absolute would actually be representative of what would be called a philosoph- philosophia perennis. And that was his goal, is to get back to, to recollect the philosophia perennis, the perennial philosophy. That's the, the perfect expression of philosophy that is, that's held up uh, in the, or exists in, I should say, the absolute. So these are both big ideas that we're going to come back to later as well. But the general idea here, just to kind of summarize, is that Prisca Theologia is a is a hermetic concept, in other words, an alchemy concept, that there's some primordial or pristine original theology that all of the world's faiths and philosophies lend partial insight to. They're like fragmented. You can imagine like there's one true faith and it's like a mirror and it's been smashed and, you know, all the pieces are on the ground and they're reflecting different parts. And this one's reflecting Christianity and this one's reflecting Buddhism and this one's reflecting Islam and this one's reflecting Judaism and this one's reflecting Jainism and whatever. And they're all lending partial insight to the real thing. But if they could just be made to converge, then you can get to that original one true theology, the Prisca Theologia, and the alchemy is, alchemy is how that's done because the fragments of this true philosophy appear in all of these junky worldly forms, base metal forms. And if you could just purify, if you could get the seeds of the true, the, the true philosophy, the original philosophy, the primordial philosophy to sprout out of this, then you could get back to this Prisca Theologia through an alchemical convergence 
of the various um, different faiths of the world, for example. Uh, you could also reach, if he's more interested, you know, Prisca Theologia has kind of this like ancient, old, gone, primordial aspect to it. Philosophia Perennis has a different kind of eternal, and that's where his absolute really was. And that's what he's really interested in. He's using the Prisca Theologia as a model, this, this idea that he took out of the Hermetic literature as a model to get toward this perennial philosophy, which is what the absolute actually is, and that'll be able to be recovered or recollected alchemically from the various faiths and philosophies of the world by means of his speculative approach and systematic philosophy. Ultimately, what he calls re, what gets called translated as reason, he calls Vernunft, uh, which we will then we're also going to spend some time on that later, and I mispronounce it. It's Vernunft. I'm working on it. My German. So kind of drive home that this is all still very uh, metaphysical for Hegel, very religious. Hegel has it in his lectures in the philosophy of religion. Um, quote, philosophy is only explicating itself when it explicates religion, and when it explicates itself, it is explicating religion. So for him, philosophy, in other words, reason is religious. He goes on to say the trinity, to draw back to that trinity, because we're looking at these triads that he's interested in for his his, uh, his dialectic, etc., and some of these key examples. The trinity is called the mystery of God. Its content is mystical, i.e. speculative. These are two things that Hegel says in his lectures on the philosophy of religion. So now we can take a closer look at the way that Hegel would conceive of the Trinity. And I want to focus, we could talk about, and I will briefly, let me talk about being nothing and becoming. We're going to come back to the idea of becoming. But being, God is, I am the I am. You know, I, he, he, it is being, and it is in contrast to the great philosophical question of why is there something rather than nothing. So being is contrasted with nothing. And he says that becoming is the, the resolution, the synthesis of understanding this mystery. But he has this other trinity that he's very interested in, which is idea, nature, and spirit or geist. So uh, as an idealist, you know, he's centered on the ideas of society. Reason is how you engage with them, or reason itself is the expression of the ideas. These take the place of like God the Father as the absolute, as we've already heard from the Marxists. The natural world for him then becomes like the manifestation of this on earth. And so it's like the sun or Jesus. But the natural world is disordered in and of itself and is not that interesting for somebody like Hegel who's putting forth a systematic philosophy. And so Hegel has this statement, the state is the divine idea as it ex is expressed on earth. So the state becomes, in this Trinitarian metaphor, the son. So you have the ideas are the father, the state becomes the son, and geist or spirit are the various normativities of culture in some sense. Those are indicative of the Holy Spirit. So his trinity become the ideas, the state, and the spirit of the world as they're developing, but he does not have a Christological understanding of this, or a Christian understanding of this, I guess I should say. Christianity holds these things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be co-eternal as three aspects of one eternal and perfect Godhead. God, which manifests in the Word, as the Logos of John becomes flesh in the world in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is that which is God moving within and through the world. And these things are co-eternal. They are one thing as three things. And this is how the Christian metaphysic understands it. This isn't how Hegel sees it, because Hegel sees things in a process-oriented or evolutionary-oriented fashion. Um, specifically, Hegel believes that God 
that, that when you talk about God or the absolute, is that's God merely in himself or God in potentia as an abstract, as a logos or as a reason. And that's insufficient to be truly a deity because the absolute to be complete would have to not just be abstract, which is the beginning of his dialectical process, but be concrete. So God cannot merely be abstract. He has to be concrete. So he has to meet his negative and then come to synthesis in order to be completed. So this is a fundamental contradiction or creates a fundamental contradiction for Hegel in uh, the Cypher's dialectic because a God that is abstract is not concrete and a God that is concrete is not abstract. So there's our contradiction. So a synthesis will be needed to reconcile these. And that synthesis is the realized absolute. And here's where we come back to being nothing and becoming is the absolute who becomes absolute only by his realization of himself as a synthetic to both abstraction as an idea and worldly concreteness. So, which is expressed in nature and then nature as uh, regulated by the state which is the divine idea expressed on earth. He also sees God as imminent in the world. So this is kind of a panentheist view rather than a uh, traditional Christian view. He's not God is not transcendent to the world for Hegel. Hegel's view is that these three things, the idea or nature in the state, and then Geist, are so-called moments of the concept. Moments are things that can't be reduced. So if I had like a... A puzzle, for example, I could take all the pieces apart and you could say, here's all these pieces and I could take it apart. But if I have something like color, which is constructed of like hue and shade and, you know, saturation or whatever, I can't take those things apart and still have the color. I can't take a color apart, but it has these different components. So a moment is like a thing that has components, but can't be taken apart. And so these things are moments of the concept. The concept is kind of this key thing at the center of his, his metaphysic. And he compares this to the alchemical elements of mercury, sulfur, and salt because he's actually an alchemist. And he does this while outlining a systematic philosophy that uses the dialectic to negate each of these moments and allow for it to give rise to the next so that the spirit is absolute might eventually bloom. This is where you have that idea. like this, the, the absolute is like the seed. It's contained within all of this, and we can just peel away all of the bad idea all the bad parts, the imperfected parts of the idea, then the ideal or perfected spirit, the absolute, the Weltgeist might bloom. And this is just like alchemists hold that gold is believed to bloom from its seeds that are contained in every base metal and other materials. It's just like Marcuse believed that liberation exists like a seed inside of a corrupted society, that if we could just figure out how to do Alfhaven to it correctly so that we could keep that seed while tearing away the rest of the junk, then it would be able to blossom and take off. So for Hegel, this is his metaphysic again, the ideas take earthly form in nature and in the world, and they're managed under the, the concept of the state. So the divine idea expresses itself through the state. So an inclination towards statism in Hegelian philosophy has a metaphysical imperative. It's not only obvious, but as a metaphysical imperative, the state in turn then sets the material conditions for society, which gives rise to how people live. It gives rise to the spirit that they live under, or in other words, the culture, which we'll call the geist of that nation or society or the world, maybe when it's all perfected and it's the world, then it will be the Weltgeist. And this is where we're, what the goal is to try to head to. The geist then ref in turn, though, because each moment negates the previous, the geist is then going to be able to refine 
refine how the prevailing ideas, the philosophy, using the dialectic in Aufhaben by finding the contradictions in that new structure. The ideas are coming down, the state is impl implementing them, the, 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 the culture that arises and things still aren't perfect, and the cultures, the people in the culture are going to start discovering the problems. And so the Geist is then going to take the next level of refining, and the more conscious they are, the more consciousness they have, the more ability they're going to have to refine these ideas. And that's going to give rise to a new iteration of improved ideas, allowing this process to repeat. So we no longer have this kind of eternal God that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We now have this ideas as God, state as Son, and Geist or culture as spirit. And they, rather than just being three in one, we now have this kind of spiraling process where one gives rise to a, an improved version of the past of the next or whatever, or of the previous, I should say. So we have this spiraling through history where, where, where a new improved state follows from the new improved ideas, usually as Hegel had it through the activity of a man of action that is being used by history, which has its talos, a purpose to it. And this is going to create new conditions and thus a new geist, which is in a sense, a new culture. And that's going to start the process all over again. So you have this spiraling through history of ideas, state, spirit, idea, state, spirit, improving as they go along the trajectory of history. That's Hegelian metaphysics. So in this sense, the Trinity is no, not transcendent and eternal. It's imminent and it's a process. It isn't, it's becoming. It isn't perfect. It's perfectible and perfecting through the process of history. In other words, it's heading toward the emergence or the recollection of that philosophy perennis, the perennial philosophy, by speculatively, which is say mystically trying to recollect the Prisca Theologia. This is a very alchemical approach to this trinity. This is Hegel's philosophy on this. Philosophy is how this is going to be done for Hegel. Reason, Vernunft. Because that's how the Geist informs the philosophers to improve the ideas. And the process that Hegel recommends to do this is the dialectic, which is through seeking those contradictions, but while keeping that essential core. In other words, Aufheben. The reason for this is ultimately the alchemy, the hermeticism that he based a lot of his thought on because he was an alchemist. It's also because he's a Gnostic and he believed that his ideas of reason were higher and they understood things better. So for Hegel, though, the Godhead isn't a thing that is in the world or is transcendent to the world, I should say, but merely is. It's a process that spirals through and creates history as it goes. Again, ideas give rise to a state. Father begets son. This creates conditions for a spirit that then flows back into the Father, which is now more self-aware than it was before, and this unfolding of history and the refinement of ideas are one and the same. For Hegel, this deity is absolute spirit, or the absolute, or the absolute idea. It is the ultimate synthesis of all of the subjective spirit and objective spirit through the di dialectical process. It's the synthesis of the theoretical and the practical. It is what happens when the abstract God meets his negation in the worldly squalor and is synthesized into um, into the absolute, into something that is becoming absolute, I really should say, into becoming. So being nothing and uh, becoming. So while the absolute is always the absolute in the, me the Hegelian metaphysic, the deal is that the absolute doesn't know that it's absolute until its ideas are perfected, right? So God isn't God until God uh, God isn't God if he's just an idea, if he's just transcendent. God has to be in the world and also transcendent, and that has to be synthesized. Okay, And so that's what the absolute is. It has to be a God that is out of the world and in the world and simultaneously aware of itself as such. 
that synthesis has to arrive. And the name for that synthesis is the absolute. And they, when that occurs, the so-called ideas of, of, of the society, thus the state that flows from it, thus the spirit of the people are all going to be perfected. And that's what Marx thought would be the communist state, or that's what Marcuse thinks is liberation. That's what you see when you talk about black liberation. That's what you see when you hear people talking about racial justice or racial liberation or whatever liberation they're all talking about today in the woke thing. So God for Hegel doesn't become God until God realizes that he's God, which is required or which occurs only after uh, God makes creation as a dialectical other to himself to compare himself against, and the process unfolds itself all the way until the perennial philosophy is remembered as a result. That's, I guess, very complicated, but they kind of bounce back to Judeo-Christianity to make it more simple. The Judeo-Christian metaphysic God is. I am the I am. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the thing that is before, beginning, and after the end eternal, perfect, etc. God creates the world because it is his will as the creator to do so. In the Hegelian metaphysics, God as absolute becomes rather than is through a process of having the world and reflecting himself against the world and refining in that process the ideas of the world via that above described spiral process. So the absolute becomes truly absolute only when it is both abstract and concrete and realizes itself to be such, and thus it becomes the absolute. It realizes itself as the absolute, or it actualizes itself, or realizes itself are the words that you often see around this. So this absolute then becomes the last idea to be perfected. Uh, the realization that God, God realizing himself is the last idea to be perfected. So a God that everything's perfect, except he doesn't realize that everything's perfect yet is the last step before the perfected God. So that last idea to be perfected is God realizing himself as God. So God realizing himself as God becomes the final perfected idea, after which which time the ideas become perfect, and again the state becomes perfect, so the spirit and culture become perfect, and history reaches its end and utopia begins. And that is the Hegelian historicist um, metaphysic that dry, is driven through the alchemical method of dialectic that, that, that burns off or tears away the uh, incorrect ideas, the failures of history, the, the things that have to be taken apart via the process of Alfhaven, which is to destroy and yet keep. So Hegel frames this out roughly as God creating in the world, the world itself as some other to itself as an abstract idea. So now you have the, the abstract God creates a negation, or the negative, the other, which is the world, by which he will be able to know himself. That is through hermetic theosophy. That is the definition of hermetic theosophy, that God requires the world to realize that he's God. And that is the heart of the Hegelian thought. This perfect being, he, so, so the absolute represents, or the deity represents an, a perfect being, save that he doesn't know that he's perfect. So he creates this imperfect world. So that's the, the Prisca Theologia, for example, would understand would be the theology that understands that God. So he creates this imperfect world as an antithesis to his own perfection. And this is the process of dialectical synthesis, which will be carried out by philosophers, politicians, so-called men of action, who are summoned by history for the purpose of driving the talos of history. He will eventually be able to be made aware of himself as absolute. The philosophers and so on drive this because they are the ones who work with the ideas and exist within the spirit or the geist, the culture, the national or world level, be that, you know, a national geist or a world geist, Weltgeist in German. But again, ultimately, this is alchemy. This is hermeticism. 
It means a lot more specifically if we get into what hermeticism is really about, but the root of hermeticism is the belief that God requires creation to be God and that he learns that he is God through his creation. This is complete rejection of the Christian metaphysic where God is and God is transcendent and God doesn't need his creation. He created it because he wanted to. It was his will. So Hegel the alchemist applies his alchemical thoughts to metaphysics and what arises is his view of phenomenology and ultimately the dialectic that's supposed to drive this. And this is why what we're dealing with, with the woke, with the neo-Marxists, less with the postmodernists, they get complicated because they were despairing, they were like, they lost the faith. With the Marxists before them, with the young Hegelians before them, that's why what we see is this long 200-year-long religion that's manifesting in different ways. And it's all the Hegelian metaphysic applied to basically create the perfected society by a bunch of frankly, megalomaniacs who think that they know how to do it, they know what the perfect society looks like, and they try to approach it. So with Marx and later the neo-Marxists, they're not as up on all this mysticism, all this alchemy in the specific sense, maybe with the exception of Walter Benjamin, uh, he's an early Frankfurt school guy who was actually a Jewish mystic. Um, he maybe is an important exception, but most of them weren't that deep into the mysticism. Marx certainly wasn't deep into the mysticism unless you want to try to classify him as a Satanist, which there are Marx quotes that would, would kind of support that. Um, but anyway, none of this, this, this deeper engine of Hegel though, despite the fact that they kind of get rid of the so-called mystical shell to get to that kernel, that's what Marx was talking about. None of the engine really goes away. The, the dialectical process, a lot of the alchemical, alchemical belief is still presently there. Marx reframed things in a material way. He talked about ideology, superstructure, and society, right? Well, there's your ideas, state, and uh, spirit. <laughs> These are echoes that persist all the way down. For example, in Critical Race Theory today, we have white supremacy as the ideology that gives rise to a systemic racism superstructure of society that thus creates an inequitable society and a uh, you know imperfect spirit. And a critical race consciousness, like Marxist class consciousness, is to be awakened by the critical race theorists, and that will lead people to challenge this existing status quo through a dialectical process that we heard from many black feminists and critical race theorists already. That will result in a revolution at the level of culture, a cultural revolution, where has that ever been tried before, that eventually brings equity and racial justice, and it's going to refine the ideology out of white supremacy, and the ideology will therefore give rise to a not systemically racist superstructure, and we enter into a post-racial utopia, and that's really what the goal of critical race theory is, but it has no clear objective to get there. But this is all exactly the same ideas, whether you want to point to Hegel, or you want to point to Marx, whether you want to point to Marcuse, all in new packaging. Same operating system, new computer. Um, so that this is all alchemical then for Hegel, and metaphysical is quite clear that it's state alchemical. I don't think I've really established going into like neo-Marxism and wokeism, other than that, you know to point out that Marx believed that the awakening of class consciousness would move the proletariat to advance history to its communistic end. Liberal capitalism would therefore give way to statist socialism and eventually resolve in, as Marcuse had it many years later, a society that presently exists nowhere on earth. In other words, something that isn't derived from which is, in that case, perfected communism. So in other words, communism is supposed to be the end point here. So it's no surprise that the neo-Marxists understood and adopted this ultimately alchemical form as well. So we can turn back to, the, let's, let's look at their literature, we'll find some. 
uh, Horkheimer and Adorno, we mentioned the dialectic of enlightenment. And by the way, this is the first time the word dialectic appears in that text other than in the title. Um, they're talking about dialectical thinking is, and is given as the kind of thinking, quote, in which each thing is what it is only by becoming what it is not. That's alchemy. Another good example that this alchemical thinking is still going on appears in Marcuse's Repressive Tolerance. Tolerance is only truly tolerance by becoming intolerant. We see it also where freedom is only truly free, if you limit freedom, for certain people at least. Democracy is only truly democratic when the people with the wrong ideas are disenfranchised, and maybe even lose suffrage. Critical thinking is only truly critical thinking when it adopts a critical consciousness. Or in critical race theory, a space is only desegregated when it is segregated so that it can get away from that, that structurally deterministic force of racism that's a superstructure of society. This is on the rationale that a space can therefore only be deracialized by intentionally racializing it, as we saw in Kimberly Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins, where she advocates that there's a fundamental difference between saying, I am black and I am a person who happens to be black. We have to racialize specifically to fight against the imposition of race that's already present. So we have to racialize to deracialize. And again, we see this doublespeak. This is all alchemy. Again, Horkheimer and Adorno, dialectical thinking, is, in, is the kind of thinking in which each thing is what it is only by becoming what it is not. Lead turns to gold. It's still alchemy. Of course, let's be fair. I mentioned Theodore Adorno and the dialectic of enlightenment earlier. He criticizes this exactly this idea. I tell you, he turned kind of post-Marxist by this thing 20 years later in 1966. He seeks to recover the dialectic in some new way that merely negates what is and thus opens possibilities for new ideas to bloom from the particulars with nothing in the way. We'll just get rid of everything that's in the way. We won't have a synthetic structure. We're just going to get everything out of the way, and then that perennial philosophy might emerge. But this is still alchemical thinking. We see this with the postmodernist Foucault's idea that through criticism, he can expose all the absurdities and thus expand the potentialities of being. Echoes the same vibe. Both of these lines appear you know, in the post-Marxist dimension, but we see it in neo-Marxism as well. Herbert Marcuse's liberation is the same thing under the neo-Marxist approach, described thusly in his 1969 essay on liberation, quote, beyond these limits, there's also the space, both physical and mental, for building a realm of freedom, which is not that of the present, liberation also from the liberties of the exploitative order, a liberation which must precede the construction of a free society, one which necessitates a historical break with the past and the present. So, of course, the alchemy is still present, it's just worded differently, and much less mystically. But in alchemy, this is a key important point, the alchemist must purify himself appropriately or his alchemical magic won't work. This is a key hermetic belief. Um, for Herbert Marcuse, we see this actually in the essay on liberation, which is again 1969, so it's pretty recent. And he writes in kind of shockingly eugenicist terms, you know, we've mentioned this before, what it will require, I'll actually quote here, what is now at stake are the needs themselves. At this stage, the question is no longer how can the individual satisfy his own needs without hurting others, but rather how can he satisfy his needs without hurting himself, without reproducing through his aspirations and satisfactions his dependence on an exploitative apparatus which, in satisfying his needs, perpetuates his servitude. The advent of a free society would be characterized by the fact that the growth of well-being turns into an essentially new quality of life. This qualitative change must occur in the needs, in the infrastructure of man, itself a dimension of the infrastructure of society. 
The new direction, the new institutions and relationships of production must express the ascent of needs and satisfactions very different and even antagonistic to those prevalent in the exploitative societies. Such a change would constitute the extinctual basis for freedom, which the long history of class society has blocked. Freedom would become the environment of an organism which is no longer capable of adapting to the competitive performances required for well-being under domination, no longer capable of tolerating the aggressiveness, brutality, and ugliness of the established way of life. The rebellion would then have to be taken the rebellion would then have taken root in the very nature, the biology of the individual. Now on these grounds, the rebels would redefine the objectives and the strategy of the political struggle in which alone the concrete goals of liberation can be determined. You hear Hegel all through this at this point, right? But he's talking about having to literally change the very nature of the biology of the individual so that he's no longer capable of tolerating domination. Maybe you could make him psychopathic. Um, he does t note in a footnote that he's not talking about biology as biology, like biology, biology, but rather that he's just making people totally intolerant to the idea of intolerance and, and of oppression. And look what we're doing to our poor children, making them with their microaggressions and they're so hypersensitive and they freak out and like people say no more politics at work at base camp and they throw themselves on the floor and cry and have tantrums and they have total meltdowns over everything, psychologically incapable of dealing with life because they need liberation. They need this perfect liberated world. Ooh, well, it's Marcuse's project, and is it happening? But he's pretty insistent about his biology. Whatever he says about meaning not really meaning biology, let's read a little bit more. Um, political radicalism thus implies moral radicalism, the emergence of a morality which might precondition man for freedom. So we've got to change morality completely. This radicalism activates the elementary organic foundation of morality in the human being. Uh-oh, organic foundation. Prior to all ethical behavior in accordance with specific social standards, prior to all ideological expression, morality is a disposition of the organism, perhaps rooted in the erotic drive to counter aggressiveness, to create and preserve ever greater unities of life. We would then have this side of all values, sorry, we would then have this side of all values, an instinctual foundation for solidarity among human beings. So solidarity, I mentioned, is key. A solidarity which has been effectively repressed in line with the requirements of class society, but which now appears as a precondition for liberty. Solidarity is a precondition for liberty. To the degree to which this foundation is itself historical and the malleability of human nature reaches into the depth of man's instinctual structure, changes in morality may sink down into the biological dimension and modify organic behavior. Once a specific morality is firmly established as a norm of social behavior, it is not only introjected, it operates as a norm of organic behavior. The organism receives and reacts to certain stimuli and ignores and repels others in accord with the introjected morality. Isn't that what's happened to our poor, cripple, emotionally crippled uh, college students and adults now? Which is thus promoting or imp impeding the function of the organism as a living cell in the respective society. In this way, a society constantly recreates a side of consciousness and ideology, patterns of behavior and aspiration as part of the nature of its people. And unless the revolt reaches into this second nature, into these ingrown patterns, social change will remain incomplete and even self-defeating. That's a pretty scary project, man. Just going to say, but we'll finalize with a little bit more from the essay on liberation where he really gets into this biology thing. In, advanced, in the advanced capitalist countries, he writes, the radicalization of the working classes is counteracted by a socially engineered arrest of consciousness. Yeah, of course it is. That's his main thing. And by the development and satisfaction of needs which perpetuate the servitude of the exploited, a vested interest in the existing system is thus 
fostered and the instinctual structure of the exploited and the rupture with the continuum of repression is a necessary precondition of liberation, and it does not occur. It follows that the radical change, which is to transform the existing society into a free society, must reach into a dimension of the human of human of the human existence hardly considered in Marxian theory, the biological dimension, in which the vital imperative needs and satisfactions of man assert themselves, inasmuch as these needs and satisfaction reproduce a life in servitude, liberation presupposes change in this biological dimension. That is to say, different instinctual needs, different reactions of the body as well as of the mind. So again, alchemy. Purify oneself sufficiently and engage in the dialectic, the magic process, by adopting the critical consciousness. This is what Marcuse demands, and what will happen is a liberated utopia will emerge on the other side of everybody doing this. By blooming out of the ashes of the existing society, once all of its limitations, its oppressions are burned away through Alfhaben, especially Alfhaben der Kultur. This is alchemy driven by the dialectic in order to achieve a utopia, gold sprouting from lead a golden society, a golden age, sprouting from an oppressive leaden age. It's the same alchemy, and it requires here, literally at the biological level, just like the Soviets requested a new Soviet man, the purification of the self for it to actually work. The adoption of a pure consciousness of the religious, whether it's critical consciousness, class consciousness, racial consciousness, whatever it happens to be. So in essence, this is the Hegelian idea that people will not and cannot be free so long as they are other to the absolute, and in the instant that they genuinely become aware of their own role in manufacturing the absolute and how the absolute understands itself, the absolute will realize itself, history will end, and liberation or communism or true freedom, whatever they want to say, will emerge in this perfected society that comes out at the end of history, and that's Hegel's historicism, upon which all of these stupid ideas are based. It's a Hegelian religion. Of course, we can put all that crap that, that Marcuse just said, the purification, etc., much more simply by talking about a contemporary voice. Robin D'Angelo, the author of White Fragility, puts it from her much narrower perch in critical whiteness studies in that 2018 book called White Fragility that you have to try to be less white. That's the ambition. Try to be less white. That's the solution. Try to be less white. Coca-Cola infamously took this up as a diversity imperative, which results in them facing massive blowback because people saw right through how horrific this is. But for D'Angelo, this is the same as Marcuse, really. The same idea as Marcuse. If we were to just purify ourselves of the white supremacist superstructure, get that out of the way, a racially liberated world might bloom. If we want to do that, we have to apply the dialectic, but we can only do that if we've already adopted this so-called racial humility, racial stamina, critical race consciousness that she's advocating. We have to be aware of her whiteness and strive to be less white. We have to recognize that there is no such thing as a positive white identity. That's another quote from D'Angelo. Once we've purified ourselves, we can therefore apply the dialectic to challenge that white supremacist superstructure by disrupting, dismantling, whatever the words of subverting, this is applying the flame that heats the world so that the alchemy toward a perfected idea, state, and culture, and that's the end of history, can be achieved. You hear it in Robin D'Angelo, you hear it in Herbert Marcuse, you see it in Marcuse, or you see it in Hegel, and it's really also in Marx. It's, it's, that line is completely drawn at this point 
And now we're starting to see that it is a religion with a complete metaphysic, a complete different idea of how the world and God and being and nothing and everything are constituted. A God no longer that is, but a God that becomes by the actions of humans, understanding the problematics and tearing them away so that the seeds of gold, it's the alchemy, will arise from that Alfhabend world. I know Alfgehoben is the correct past tense there or something like that, or Alf, I don't know. You can do the German. So the basic idea here is that in the process of creating the other, which is the world, God, which is present in everything, which is kind of a panentheist idea, exists in fragmented form, trapped within all these imperfected or imperfections of the world and the philosophies and religions that arise. The alchemical process is believed uh, it believes the same thing about seeds of gold being trapped in baser materials. Uh, is going to be applied here. The alchemical process is to treat those in some kind of an alembic, usually with fire, uh, by spiritual pure, spiritually pure alchemists who are in parallel are critically conscious philosophers. In other words, by Gnostics. And what will happen is they will free the seeds of gold or the perfected society or perfected ideas and get them to blossom and thus change the base metal and material into gold or the society into a perfected absolute. The idea will perfect, the absolute will realize itself, the end of history will arrive. And this is the idea behind Hegel's dialectical spiral, his trinity spiral that I've described. Maybe you think I go too far. Well, let's check again. Let's go look at Marcuse again. Again, these themes are going to appear over and over again. In the introduction to the second edition of One Dimensional Man, this is not written by Marcuse. They describe what Marcuse's project is. And he writes, Marcuse thought that dialectical philosophy could promote critical thinking. One-dimensional man is perhaps Marcuse's most sustained attempt to present and develop the categories of the dialectic philosophy developed by Hegel and Marx. For Marcuse, dialectical thinking involved the ability to abstract one's perceptions and thought from existing forms in order to form more general concepts. Uncritical thinking derives its beliefs, norms, and values from existing thought and social practices, while critical thought seeks alternative modes of thought and behavior from which it creates a standpoint of critique. Such a critical standpoint requires developing what Marcuse calls negative thinking, which negates existing forms of thought and reality from the perspective of higher possibilities, spiritually pure alchemy. This practice presupposes the ability to make a distinction between existence and essence, fact and potentiality, and appearance and reality. So these are things that will be dialecticized. Mere existence would be negated in favor of realizing higher potentialities, while norms discovered by reason would be used to criticize and overcome lower forms of thought and social organization. Thus, grasping potentialities for freedom and happiness would make possible the negation of conditions that inhibited individuals' full development and realization. In other words, perceiving the possibility of full, sorry, of self-determination and constructing one's own needs and values could enable individuals to break with the existing world of thought and behavior. Philosophy was thus to supply the norms for social criticism and the ideal of liberation, which would guide social change and individual self-transformation. And he also notes critical and dialectical thinking, by contrast, postulates norms of criticism based on rational potentials for human happiness and freedom, which are used to negate existing states of affairs that oppress individuals and restrict human freedoms and well-being. Dialectical thought thus posits the existence of other realms of ideas, images, and imagination that serves as a potential guide for a social transformation that would realize the unrealized potentialities for a better life. Marcuse believes that 
Great philosophy and art are the locus of these potentialities and critical norms, and he decodes the best products of Western culture in this light. So he's performing alchemy on them in order to reach these higher, unrealized potentialities for a better life. So for Hegel, where this all comes from, as we just heard, the divine expresses itself in nature. So the seeds of the divine, the perfected ideas, exist in everything but yet everything is imperfect and must contain its own contradictions. The philosopher, when sufficiently Gnostic, will then be able to apply, in other words, having the right consciousness, will then be able to apply reason, Vernunft, as opposed to mere Verstand. We'll come back to Vernunft and Verstand in a minute. Via the dialectic to expose the contradictions and in synthesis get the seeds of of the divine to blossom into the world. This gives rise to more perfected ideas, and the process repeats again, with history acting as the alembic, or the world acting as the alembic, and dialectic acting as the fire, and Alfaben acting as the, the, the reducing process. Occasionally for Hegel, great men of action, this is a key concept that he based off of, for example, Napoleon, are brought to the fore by history to move this process along kind of in lurches. A lot of times they're warlords who kill a lot of people, Napoleon was his archetype, like I said, Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Che Guevara, Castro, Pol Pot, possibly Woodrow Wilson, maybe FDR and others, certainly looking more historically, Alexander, Genghis Khan, etc. These would all make the list of men of action. And they are used by history, according to Hegel, to move the process of history along because history has this arching purpose to it that is ultimately to actualize the absolute. And it doesn't matter if these are good guys or bad guys, right? Because if they're bad guys, that's okay. Because sometimes it takes good roads and sometimes it takes bad roads. That's what we heard from Hegel earlier and in his own words. So philosophers primarily for Hegel, though, philosopher, he's got a high place for people like him, uh, are, are meant to move this along in particular. And the tool that they're going to use is reason, which when it's perfected is the absolute. Though every day, they, they, you know, folks with, and I say folks very intentionally, who live within the Geist are also helping to move it along because they help to expose those contradictions in the current state of affairs, which the philosophers will then be able to identify and resolve through proper application of dialectical synthesis. So you see this kind of revolving door that we talked about with the woke between the activists and the scholars here. The faster in the Hegelian thought process, the faster, especially the young Hegelian progressive thought process, the faster this process goes. In other words, the harder the dialectic is pushed, the more the existing society and status quo are torn down and broken, the faster the absolute will be able to realize itself through its through engagement with its other, and thus the faster everything will be perfected and turned to utopia. So this is, like I said, for Hegel, being that he's a speculative philosopher, he believes he's looking in a mirror to, to remembering a process of uncovering or recollecting or remembering through speculation, which again we're going to remember is mysticism, that philosophy perennis, the perennial or eternal philosophy, that is the one true philosophy that all theologies, all religions, all systematic world philosophies are all revealing some part of, but are not properly doing because they're not all convergent into one idea. The alchemical process then is to take the fragmented pieces of this philosophy, uh, philosophia perennis and reduce it in the alembic of speculative philosophy down to its essential core. And the tool for doing this is going to be the dialectic, that's the fire really, across the differences. And the, the way that it's actually done is through Alfhaben. That is the philosoph- uh, philosophia perennis, or perennis, which characterizes the absolute and indicates when 
realized that the absolute has actualized as the ultimate dialectical synthesis of all ideas, like I said before, everything in the world come back, comes back to one idea. So this is Hegel's speculative idealism, is trying to remember the Prisca theologia, the primordial theology. Um, that was a concept actually that was introduced just to make this point really clear in case it's not yet from Marsilio Ficino or Ficino in the 15th century through the 1400s, I guess then, which is a central concept in hermetic faith. That's alchemy. So it turns out Ficino was actually a priest, but he was also sufficiently uh, hermetic to where he was nearly excommunicated. He was threatened with excommunication uh, for his, his alchemy, also for his astrology, and maybe for his Neoplatonism. So the parallels between Ficino and Hegelianism end up being pretty obvious. Uh, Hegel was certainly aware of him because he commented on him in uh, one of his books. Um, you can see this in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, for example, where it's where they write about Ficino. Ficino saw himself as one member of a venerable sequence of interpreters who added to a store of wisdom that God allowed progressively to unfold. So he's a Gnostic as well. Each of these prisky theologi or ancient theologians had his part to play in discovering, documenting, and elaborating the truth contained in the writings of Plato and other ancient sages, a truth to which these sages may ha not have been fully privy, acting as they were as vessels of divine truth. So Ficino, who was an inspiration in some ways to Hegel, was an astrologer and alchemist who was responsible for the translation of Hermetic texts, meaning literally the texts of Hermes Tris uh, Trismegistus, along with various Neoplatonists into Latin. And Hegel, writing in the History of Philosophy, um, is aware of him. Uh, technically, he criticizes Ficino's Neoplatonism, but he also adopts his hermetic view in something of his uh, Prisca Theologia, um, in particular the view that all faiths and philosophies are manifestations of the one and the same ultimate faith that's being expressed inadequately and incompletely in the world. And so Hegel believes in his systematic philosophy and his reason when it's perfected and becomes the absolute that he has the accurate one true philosophy or faith. This is all being done for Hegel, however, because he sees the absolute as existing throughout time, even though it's becoming absolute throughout time as well, uh, freeing up the philosophia perennis from the confines of cloudy nature, which has fragmented it and locked it away in various worldly forms, philosophies, and theologies that were constructed by people who only know the part but forgot the whole. So for Hegel, when you know the whole, the parts all make sense. So this gets us, I said we were going to come back to Verstand and Vernunft. These are these two ideas of, of science and, and reason that Hegel had. So under the, the broader heading of knowledge, the Wissenschaft uh, in German, which is often translated as science, you actually have two categories for Hegel. One is Verstand, which means understanding in translation, and one is Vernunft, which is translated as reason. So Verstand is the lower level. That's just understanding things. It's, it's parallel to traditional theory in the critical and traditional theory break. It's just understanding how things work. It's physics. It's science. It's philosophy. Hegel hated, absolutely hated Isaac Newton, thought he was a total charlatan and a fraud because he was limited to these very observational, empirical, and very rigorous kind of things. And he probably also hated his alchemy because Newton was an alchemist too. Um, he died, I think, of mercury poisoning, as a matter of fact, as a result of his alchemy. For Nunf, however, is is under is reason. Reason's higher, and his his his, his articulation of this is actually laying out so-called a 
logic of science or something like this, uh, a system of science. And for Stand, understanding is the low level, and at the higher level, you have this kind of critical dialectical analysis. His 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 systematic philosophy is reason, and for Nunft is a reason. And when reason is perfected, you have the absolute, which is a perfected, reemerged. Uh, philosophy a perennis which reflects the Prisca Theologia. So this is kind of a very um, arrogant way of viewing his own philosophy as basically perfect, uh, but it's also a very Gnostic way of thinking. The the first stand where you're trying to understand the world and and do so empirically and logically, that's low level understanding. There's a higher level of understanding, and you kind of heard Marcuse repeatedly re, re, you know, appeal to this, a higher level of understanding that's available to the people who have true reason, which is freed up and has a consciousness behind it. And that consciousness is a consciousness of the absolute. Pretty intense. Um, we could put this a slightly different way. Um, I, one of Hegel's tenets that, you know, under the purpose of reason is that the particular cannot be understood except in relationship to the whole. We were just talking about that. This is the focus on contradictions, which help you understand that you don't know the whole because if there's a contradiction, you clearly missed something. This means that Hegel's philosophy is ultimately, and these are some magic words I want you to pay attention to, Hegel's philosophy is ultimately holistic rather than reductionist. For Stand is reductionist. It's to understand things, break them down, and get it. Vernunft is holistic, and that puts Verstand as lowly while Vernunft is higher. The holistic science. But it also means really that what he calls reason is actually ideology, and this is why all the way down this line, whether it's the young Hegelians, probably Hegel himself, the young Hegelians, the Marxists, the neo-Marxists, the cultural Marxists, eh, we get weird with the postmodernists, but certainly the woke all seem to think that they have something better, a more holistic, superior understanding of the world than everybody else, and that it's very Gnostic in nature. Um, turning back to the Marxist.org glossary, looking up the term dialectic, we kind of get confirmation of this. They say their formal thinking often has trouble understanding the causes of events. Something has to be a cause and something else the effect. And people are surprised when they irrigate land and 20 years later, due to salination of the land, silting of the waterways, etc., they have a desert. Dialectics, on the other hand, understands that, the, that cause and effect are just one and another side of a whole network of relations, such as we have in an ecosystem. And one thing cannot be changed without changing the whole system. So here's our systemic thinking. Formal thinking often has trouble understanding the causes of events. Something has to be a cause and something else the effect. All right, sorry, I copied that twice. Changing the whole system is where I wanted to leave off there. <laughs> I didn't mean to copy it twice, sorry. Um, so dialectic, they write, has its origins in ancient society, both among the Chinese and the Greeks, where thinkers sought to understand nature as a whole and saw that everything is fluid, constantly changing, coming into being and passing away. It was only when the piecemeal method of observing nature in bits and pieces practiced in Western thinking in the 17th and 18th century had accumulated enough positive knowledge for the interconnections, the transitions, the genesis of things to become comprehensible, that conditions became ripe for modern dialectics to make its appearance. It was Hegel who was able to sum up this picture of universal interconnection and mutability of all things in a system of logic, which is a foundation of what we today call dialectics. So in other words, all this stupid scientific understanding of things people, you know, formal thinking, all of this traditional theory 
is first stunned and it's lowly and it's stupid and people make big mistakes like turning their farmland into desert by not understanding on a higher level. But we have a higher level for Numft, which is the dialectic, which is Hegel's systematic philosophy. So he names his own systematic philosophy ultimately as logic and that higher in reason and that systematic philosophy is in fact for him the higher way of thinking and it is driven by the dialectic. So this is Hegel's metaphysic, and it ties into that thread that I said that the operating system is the dialectic. So in one sense, you could follow Marx, who said Hegel had the thing standing on its head and turned it back upright. And then the neo-Marxist said that Marx had kind of got this backwards and had to turn Hegel back upright again. I think it's more accurate, though, to, anal to analyze these three groups in a different way, in kind of a more dialectical frame, if you will. I think it would be more accurate to say that Hegel focused on the ideas, which is to say God, the absolute. Marx focused on the state, and thus the materialist world, or the sun. And the neo-Marxist focused on the culture, which is the spirit or the geist. So that makes a solid, very clear through line that these people are all, the Hegel, Marxist, neo-Marxist, and their woke inheritors are all talking about the same thing, with just different aspects being what they believe is the relevant part where you do the alchemical process. For Hegel, if you want to change the world, you focus on the ideas. For Marx, if you want to change the world, you focus on the state and the material conditions. For the neo-Marxists, if you want to change the world, you focus on the culture, and that translates into the woke as well. Just as an aside, by the way, take a moment to recoil in horror what it implies under Marxism that a philosophy treats the state like it's Jesus which in some sense provides salvation and life, but also an ideal model for how to live an ethical life, because that's really what's going on under, under Hegelian statism, especially as it got expressed in Marxism. Because in this way, uh, I just recoil in horror about that for a second. Just hang on. Jesus as the state. State becomes Jesus. That's, you know, you're supposed to, the way the truth and the, truth and the life become the state. And this really is how Hegel thought about the state, by the way. We'll come back to this in, in a few moments. Um, so in this way of thinking, just summing up the metaphysics, if I can, a little bit, Hegel remains speculative, which means mystical, trying to apply the dialectic to ideas. Marx frees him from his mystical shell, makes the dialectic into dialectical materialism, and seeks to exploit the contradictions of material life by raising class consciousness in the people who experience it. And the neo-Marxists shift that whole project to Alfhaben der Kultur, the dialectical abolishment or transformation of culture. In working in the Geist. So the current woke project is primarily an effort of constant multi-dimensional Alfhabender culture, cultural warfare of the dialectical leftist motif. Thus it's no surprise that we are now currently embroiled in a totalizing international culture war. And it's also very easy to see who the antagonists are and how they proceed. And the way that they proceed is through this, you know, culture war, this Alfhabender culture, tear down the existing culture to cause problems. It's also very easy to see this whole project in all three of these forms as being a religion. In fact, three species or three denominations of one religion, or maybe four denominations of one religion. The Judeo-Christian model is not a terrible metaphor, 
but I don't want you to get me wrong and take this all too literally. I'm just using a comparison. I don't want to upset any of my Christian friends here. I want to get people to think. I want to spur the thinking. I want to use the historical development of Christianity in this regard. I'm not comparing or comparing the values or the ethics involved. I'm not comparing the value. I'm not comparing the truth. I'm just using it as a comparison point so people understand. But in this sense, one you could you could almost think of Hegel himself as being kind of Judaic. And he's the one that's establishing and making covenant with, documenting this new absolute deity. Marx then falls into the role of the early pre-Pauline Christians who have brought this faith into a new era of practicality, but whose reach is relatively limited in the neo-Marxist by turning to Alf Habender Coulter down through the woke, would be like the Pauline evangelists whose reach is virtually unlimited. And that's sort of the religious structure of this religion in terms of how it comes out practically. In all three cases, so, so Hegel, the Judaic faith is very exclusive. The kind of pre-Pauline Christian approach is also quite limited in terms of its reach, but evangelistic Christianity is billions and global, rapidly expansive. Um, and this, this Pauline you know, demand to, to evangelize is indicative of what you see in the neo-Marxists and the evangelists by moving the entire project into the, into the site of Geist. So rather than working within the idea as the deity or working within the material world as the sun, they instead turn to the Geist. In other words, they're working through what Hegel would conceive of as the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit is what moves the world. And good night are they ever succeeding at moving the world with it. Just a metaphor, though. Don't get too caught up in that. In all three cases, though, the basic underlying faith is identical, present, largely constant, and that faith is based on Hegel's metaphysics, which is ultimately a metaphysic based in societal alchemy that's meant to create some new world that's perfected and utopian. And this leaves it open to megalomaniacs who throughout history have come up and picked up these ideas, whether Hitler, whether Stalin, whether Lenin, whether Mao, we could name more, who pick up these ideas and think that their vision of the right side of history can be implemented under their rule. And the woke, although they don't have this charismatic man of action behind them right now, as it's phrased in Hegel, are doing the same thing, which is why I've called it Leninism 4.0 in the past. So let's step back now. Let's kind of change gears and start heading toward a very long wrap-up to this. we got a ways to go still. We're at over three hours. It's amazing. Um, step back to this whole whole line of broadly Hegelian thought. There are lots of consequences. Let's talk about the consequences of this line of thinking. So one is necessity and urgency to the dialectic. If you really believe that the utopia is brought about faster by the process of the dialectic, you have to do this hard and fast, as hard and fast as possible. This is what the progressives drive at. The more vigorously the dialectic is applied, the faster we get to utopia that exists at the end of history. So everybody who resists this must somehow be evil because they resist the idea of utopia and they drag humanity's feet, they, feet, they drag history's feet. And in the whole time that this happening, they maintain all of these oppressions of the imperfected society. That's evil. So you're going to see urgency, you're going to see demands for conformity, you're going to see demands for collectivism as a result. We're also going to see statism, and I'm going to have to quote Hegel quite a bit, but you already saw all these seeds of statism, I just haven't really backed them up. But I really want to convince you that Hegel was a statist, so it's no surprise that Marxism becomes statist, The neo-Marxism is totally totalitarian, and that wokeism inherits both statism and totalitarianism, because Hegel's philosophy is ultimately profoundly statist. Remember that the state is a divine idea as expressed on earth. 
is pretty statist. So in the philosophy of right, Hegel writes, quote, the state is absolutely rational inasmuch as it is the actuality of the substantial will which it possesses in the particular self-consciousness once that consciousness has been raised to consciousness of its universality. That's a complicated way of saying that basically once consciousness becomes kind of critically aware, then you have the state being absolutely rational and it's going to be a perfected state, like I keep saying. This substantial unity, Hegel writes, is an absolute unmoved end in itself, in which freedom comes into its supreme right. On the other hand, this final end has supreme right against the individual, whose supreme duty is to be a member of the state. So total statism under Hegelian thought, and you see this exact mentality all the way down that whole line. Young Hegelian, uh, Marxist, neo-Marxist, woke. What else did Hegel say? Same in philosophy of right, he says, the state is the actuality of the ethical idea. It is the ethical mind qua the substantial will manifest and revealed to itself, knowing and thinking itself, accomplishing what it knows and insofar as it knows it. This sets aside, of course, I mean, this more statism, obviously. This sets aside, of course, his much more famous declaration in the philosophy of history, which I just referenced, for truth is the unity of the universal and subjective will, and the universal is to be found in the state, in its laws, its universal and rational arguments. The state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. We have in it, therefore, the object of history in a more definite shape than before, and in which freedom obtains objectivity and lives in the enjoyment of this subjectivity. So this is why they think freedom comes from the state in Hegelian leftism. And remember, the state has the supreme right against the individual whose supreme duty is to be a member of the state. This is Hegelian statism. So all of his theosophy aside, all of his metaphysic aside, all of this has political consequences. And free societies like the United States, especially any free society, like the United States in particular, that proceeds from a Lockean or then derived Jeffersonian framework, we believe that rights precede the state. Our rights were endowed by a creator. They are inalienable. In a Hegelian framework, this is not how it works. The individual is totally to be subsumed by the state. It has a supreme right against it, and the individual has a complete duty to the state. Total statism, total collectivism. So rights are then replaced by privileges to be granted by the state. This is a completely different political model. Rights endowed by the creator meets the antithesis of uh, privileges granted by the state. The connection to what's going on in the woke ideology today here cannot be missed, especially in the now famous declaration in Critical Race Theory and Introduction that I've repeatedly quoted uh, from page 23 in my edition, first edition. Critical race theorists are highly suspicious of another liberal mainstay, namely rights. Of course they are. And they're simultaneously obsessed with privilege and how the system, which is a manifestation of the idea state and the culture or geist, creates and thus bestows privilege. Privilege is something that's granted by the state. They're obsessed with the idea of privilege. They're obsessed with who has privilege and how that's unfair because the state itself is unfair because the entire structure of the idea, state, and culture are incorrect. And so they agitate culture 
knowing that that's where you have the most drive to change the entire thing, to reorganize who has privilege. That's why they're so obsessed with privilege. That's why they want people to check their privilege. That's why they want to criticize privilege. That's why they're constantly harping on privilege because privilege is something that comes down from the state and they want to reorganize everything so that privilege gets reorganized so that it operates according to their ideology, their worldview. Another consequence of the Hegelian thought, as I've just mentioned a couple times, is collectivism, therefore, because when the ideas are perfected, and this is a little bit of a philosophical point, everybody must have the same ideas because they're perfect. And all the contradictions that lead to different ideas must have been synthesized. Now think about it. If anybody has different ideas, that's a site of contradictions. If your idea and my idea are different, we now have a dialectic between us. So that means it's not perfectly synthesized. So we don't have the perfect idea. Therefore, the absolute has not recognized itself unless we all have the same idea. There can be no cognitive liberty in the perfected state. We have to have total collectivism. We don't all have to even be the same. We have to think the same. And this is going to happen by bringing that state, by all subsuming our will to the state, giving over our will, our duty to the state entirely. So now we're as collectivist organization. So collectivism is massively, I don't think, of course, that Hegelian thought created collectivism. Collectivism precedes it, but it is a amplification of it to a dramatic degree with a powerful collectivist metaphysic underneath it. And this, of course, Collectivism leads people who take it up to try to force a situation because they believe that when there's total conformity to their totalizing ideology, and that's collectively maintained, then we're now near or at the point of the absolute realizing itself. We're now at the perfected point and the utopia is imminent because we're all part of the dialectical process that's moving history forward and we're all in it together. We're all in it together, right? That's collectivism. And of course, anybody who has a different idea becomes both a problem, but also proof that the absolute hasn't realized itself because the ideas haven't been perfected. So that person becomes a site, somebody with a different idea, somebody with their own thoughts, with cognitive freedom, becomes a site where the dialectic is continuing to play out. But that means it's not done playing out. So the utopia is not here. So somebody with different thoughts is preventing the emergence of the utopia. And probably they're just being stubborn. And you can see where the frustration starts to rise and where people get shot. People who don't want to get on board with this, especially once some psychopath or megalomaniacal man of action have taken control and power, which is totally a weakness of this ideology because their man of action is always being looked for, who's going to move this through. That's going to be perceived from within this logic as being against the realization of utopia, problematic, and in need of elimination or at least of excommunication or silencing or complete marginalization. And that's exactly what we see. That's cancel culture. And uh, that's exactly what we saw with much more horrific manifestations under people like Lenin and Stalin and Mao, etc. Che Guevara, Fidel, you know, you name them. And this is another thing. I just mentioned, you know, these guys, this kind of a mentality, this Hegelian magic is wide open to psychopaths and other megalomaniacs who think that they have, and they have the charisma to pull it off a little bit, and the total ruthlessness to, to force it. They think they have the vision. They've studied the theory, and they know what it is, so they have the vision and the capacity to decide what, what the right side of history actually is, and it's going to strangely conform to their freaking pathologies, of course, and they're going to install a pathocracy, a pathological government that basically tries to make their life like everybody's working for them, and they have the ability to usher that in at whatever costs. This is going to happen again and again under a Hegelian 
uh, framework. This is why the left right now is utterly catastrophic, and it keeps generating these catastrophic movements. Hegel's man of action is meant to come in in the attempt to fulfill history. History is using him. It's not even his own agency. History is using the man of action to progress the dialectic, to progress history. As critical race theory has it, right? The dialect, and so the dialectic progresses, right? And if he fails in his his mission to to fulfill history, that still fits into the same mold. History still progresses. If he doesn't fulfill history, history progresses. He win-win. So he's likely to gain significant support from the dialectical left who believes in this kind of faith. But this leads into um, these kind of mentalities that we keep hearing, these these tropes. For example, real communism has never been tried. Because every attempt so far was actually just a case where it wasn't real communism. People forwarded some new synthetic idea that wasn't the totally synthetic perfected idea. And the contradictions that they had in their attempt were revealed to them through the unfolding process of history, which might be tens or hundreds of millions of dead people, or world wars. World War I and World War II are both the results of this. For example, all of the communist failures are results of this. Hitler is a result of this. All of this is a result of a Hegelian dialectic being taken up as a faith. So they say real communism hasn't been tried because it will only be tried or only will have occurred after the absolute realizes itself, not before. And so everything up to that point, no matter how bad, remember good roads and bad roads is how history progresses, was just a part of the process of making our way there. So thesis, communism is the way. Antithesis, 100 million people dead. Synthesis, neo-Marxism, let's shift it to culture. Let's get out of material and shift to Geist. It'll work this time. Furthermore, all these mass deaths that we see through these awful Hegelian projects, these people are just martyrs of history. They're not a tragedy. They're a victory. 100 million dead? Good. That's the view, because history used them. They're martyrs, but history used them to reveal the contradictions and the ideas that were being forwarded in that age. So they're not really a loss. They were revealing those contradictions as history needed them to. History used them and discarded them, just as it does men of action. So indeed, the 100 million dead are a benefit under this kind of a worldview. History, under Hegel's philosophy, under his historicism, which was praised by Engels, uses people for its purpose and then discards them, so a hundred million dead are just part of that process. Ends justify the means, after all. We keep hearing these things are ends in and of themselves. As Hegel had it then, the spirit of the time commanded movement, the absolute marches through history by good roads and bad ones, so long as it continues marching. A hundred million dead is just another road, just another part of the process. It's all progress, no matter how bad it is. So let's ratchet down a few notches from that horror show. Yet one more example, and then we'll we'll talk about what to do about it to wrap up at getting close to the four-hour mark. People wouldn't maybe expect is another consequence of the Hegelian thought is the interfaith movement. You know, we're ratcheting way down from 100 million dead. The interfaith movement, this is actually another aspect of Hegel's philosophy, uh, or the results of it, because of that Prisca theologia and the philosophy of Perennis that he's after. Interfaith is the attempt to bring all the various faiths and maybe philosophies together you can think of the UU Church, the United Universalists, for example, and extract from them what was originally there, that Prisca Theologia, before it became corrupted and worldly, or to identify within them the various aspects reflected of the philosophy of Perennis. That is the perennial philosophy that all of them are just badly simulating in the simulation and simulacrous sense of, of John Baudrillard. 
So for Marx, state atheism and his view of materialism would do. And our present incarnation of all this nonsense, which is woke, as with the others before, a highly refined, but mostly nonsensical vision of social justice is something to do with the philosophy of Perennis. Equity becomes the updated vision of communism under this social justice model. Public-private partnerships become the vehicle, a supranational superstate that replaces a state as nation-state. So we have our, our, our equity geist. We have our supranational state in public-private partnerships. And the faith traditions of the world all cheer this on by subverting their own beliefs to the synthetic idea of social justice. So the Christians are social justice and saying it in Christianese. The Muslims are social justice and saying it in Islamese. The Buddhists are social justice and saying it in Buddhistese. And everybody's actually not preaching their own or talking about their own faith or their own philosophy, their own tradition. They're all just using that as kind of parasitically using that to forward one different faith, which is social justice. And a socially just world is the new name for the project that will lead the absolute to realize itself and actualize. This is all still Hegelian metaphysical faith. So I hope I've now established my two big takeaways and we can turn to what we might do with this information. One, we should understand that the operating system of the left, and I devoted two hours to this, so I hope you got the point, is in fact the Hegelian dialectic though it comes in different forms and with different focuses, largely because the dialectic being its main operating system applies to itself and concentrates and changes it. So from Hegel's very idealistic view to Marx's dialectical materialist view to the neo-Marxist very cultural Alfabender culture view to the woke, you know, kaleidoscope of, of identity politics that we have today. In that sense, what we see is an underlying metaphysics, an underlying tool. It's ultimately religious and is being driven by this process, this dialectical process that is ultimately alchemical in nature. Understanding this thing is absolutely crucial to understanding what's going on now in the currents of leftist thought since at least the 1830s and maybe earlier, and it should truly be seen as a religious movement. By the way, of course, I mentioned the dialectic with the tool of Alfheben at its core is ultimately what drives the whole thing. So the methodological undercurrent of the entire leftist project over the same two-century time frame is dialectic driven by Aufheben, abolish, destroy, undermine, while trying to pull out and let blossom the seed of gold within it. So if we turn to Ben Shapiro's, now he's been talking a lot about this trichotomy in society of leftists. We're going to talk about what to do about it. Leftists, liberal, liberals, and conservatives. One thing we can take away from this mentality already is that liberals and conservatives in our society and free societies form a more natural and sensible allyship for maintaining freedom than do leftists and liberals, though liberals don't seem to realize this yet. So liberals really should be allying with conservatives, not on conservative policy goals, but on the, the maintenance of a world order that is not this insane Hegelian lef leftism that's likely to lead to the same kinds of catastrophes it keeps leading to over and over again because alchemy is not real and you can't build a positive thing out of negation constantly. In one sense, we could say then, this is another thing I want to write eventually, the West could be said to have three gods. I want to write an essay called The Three Gods of the West exploring this idea. In some broad sense, these would be the Judeo-Christian God, which would be roughly for the conservatives. We don't have to be too, this is again, just kind of tin potting the ideas, but Judeo-Christian God roughly for the conservatives, a sort of secularized, it's not exactly Spinozan, but Spinozan, Lockean God. I know Locke was a Christian, but calm down. 
that it's kind of characterizing what you see in the Jeffersonian Bible or the Jefferson Bible where he carved out all of the mysticism and the magic and whatever else is or the miracles with a with a razor knife um, early in the nation's founding. And he was reflecting those ideals, the very Jeffersonian liberal ideals. And that's for the liberals. So we have this kind of Lockean, Spinozian, Jeffersonian uh freedom deity for the liberals versus Judeo-Christian God for the conservatives. And then we have the Hegelian absolute as uh, for the leftists, which is a fundamentally different thing that's inimical to the underlying philosophical foundations shared by the conservatives and the liberals. So liberals and conservatives here, what I'm saying, once we understand what this leftism, this Hegelian faith really is, liberals and conservatives, as we use the kind of in the, I'm saying Ben Shapiro's trichotomy, leftists, liberals, and conservatives, it's not perfect. I, I get it. I know I could criticize the language, but it's useful for how we're thinking. Liberals and conservatives in that sense have something deeply in common, whereas the Hegelian leftists have something deeply different that's really should be horrifying. So there is actually a natural allyship between the, uh, the, the liberals and conservatives. We could talk about it theologically if you want. My three guys of the West would argue, for example, that this Judeo-Christian conservative God, just again, Tim Pot uh, explanation in this kind of Jeffersonian liberal God, have as presuppositions a God that is, in the the God is Alpha and Omega, I am the I am, whereas Hegel's has this leftism, has this God that becomes through their activism, justifying, you know, ends justify the means and so on. So summarizing that idea again very briefly, leftists and conservatives with their two so-called deities as representatives approach the divine with humility. That's what's something they have in common. That they're humble before something bigger than we are. That's incomprehensible to us. It's ultimately well beyond us, whereas leftists don't have this. With their Hegelian deity and their faith, uh, and, and that Hegelian faith behind them that's fueled up in praxis, they actually approach what they believe is the divine with arrogance because their goal is to bring their own vision into being and make it Lord through their machinations and activism. This is the reason that a lot of the kind of far, uh, far right conservative Christians identify it with Luciferianism or Satanism, because that's exactly the kind of thing that those ideas are supposed to reflect. Um, it is a very arrogant belief, though, that you're going to, to, to bring about the actualization of God through your activism. And compared to the humility of whether it's God the Father of the Judeo-Christian tradition or whether it's the, the world as it is beyond and bigger than us, with all that humility, that's a complete departure. So liberals and conservatives should be teaming up against leftists. That's one thing to understand from understanding what's going on here. So... Ultimately, my goal here has been to make clear what's going on with the woke left and most of the left over the last 200 years, old left, new left, woke left, which exists in a single current. That's what I'm trying to argue, a single current in which Marx is just one species, Lenin, Stalin, Mao. These are woke precursors. Wokeness is Leninism 4.0, as I've argued elsewhere. Bio-Leninism, bio as other people have argued, kind of taking a page out of Foucault by saying that when you have scientific te technocracy involved, technocratic elements where it's bio-something, and it's Leninism driven through technocratic means, so bio-Leninism. These are all just threads on the same line of thought. This is all one religion, and that religion is comprehensible, and it's defeasible when it's understood because it's intrinsically weak. It 
consistently fails to have the evidence, it doesn't have the argument, and it completely lacks the moral high ground once you understand what it is. And it, faith is ultimately the Hegelian dialectical faith, um, which is ultimately alchemical in nature, hermetic in nature, as I've been arguing on Twitter and people get pissed off at me when I do. So one ask, one more thing, what can we do with this idea then that I've summarized, is that to beat the dialectical left requires understanding that it is dialectical and then not getting dragged into the dialectic. It seeks to make something out of nothing, so you don't play along with it. You you don't go along. You don't believe that you can make something out of nothing, or that you can create positive or success out of negation. That's absolutely ridiculous, where you have Marcuse arguing that the negative thinking leads to positive. None of this will work. This is They, they literally think that the, that the golden era is inside of a shell of oppression. If we just rip all the oppression off, the golden era will, rip, will, will blossom out. This doesn't work. So what do you have to do practically as a, like an individual or an institution is you have to avoid the dialectic. You have to stay out of it. I did a whole podcast on, on my other podcast, um, my private contributors only, where I compared it to like alligators or crocodiles that drag you into the water and roll you. They throw out a dialectical bid. You need to learn to recognize these and you learn to not participate. If you if you cave in, you bend the knee, you give in, you you grant their presuppositions, you try to argue back or whatever, they drag you into the mud. Your options then are to mock it, if that's appropriate, and to get kind of funny about it, or to, as I've argued in yet another podcast, to engage their Mott and Bailey, as it's called, rhetorical strategy, steal their Mott, which means make their the core of their argument, their kernel, the truth of their argument, better than they can, and then bomb the Bailey, which is to say destroy their activist agenda. If we put it in the language of this hermetic alchemical thing, you're going to go in and you're going to say, yeah, you're right. Okay, it turned out there is a little nugget of gold inside your big lump of lead, and I'm going to take the gold out for you. That's going to be mine, and I'm going to point out why everything else you have is lead, and no, you're not going to turn that into gold. Steal the mot, bomb the Bailey. Those are the only things you can do. You have to find other modes of engagement, like mockery or this very kind of savvy steal the mot, bomb the bailey, or you have to just stand in your principles. A little bit of chauvinism won't hurt too much. Refusing to bend the knee, refusing to participate, uh, forcing them to play on, on, on neutral terms, make them define their terms, etc., so that you can stay out of their dialectic word games and so on. It also, you have to learn to start seeing and anticipating their moves and manipulations, which, which you can do once you understand that they are operating from a, a, a dialectical frame and under the belief that they're saving the world, that they're bringing about a utopia through their actions. So remember, don't fall for it. They're negative, Alfhaben, demolish, deconstruct, disrupt, dismantle, process, cannot create. It can only destroy and or spend can only destroy or spend. Harvard University is my favorite example of this right now. I just saw a thing on Twitter talking about how 40% of its professors are worried that its brand is losing status. Yeah, it is, massively. It's a freaking clown college. Harvard University is almost 400 years old. It's burned through something like 380 years or something like this of excellent, top-notch, top-grade branding in just a few years by taking all this woke crap on. It only took it like four or five years, but really just the last year to burn down 400 years. And all it did was enable a few people to grift and a few ideas to get pushed out with imprimatur that the imprimatur is going to collapse under its own weight. This is the same. All the communists or all of history, all of the neo-Marxists, all through history, all of the, they all do this. They, in, 
they, they infiltrate some, whether it's an economic institution, whether it's a cultural institution, they infiltrate it, they spend, 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 and eventually they burn the thing to the ground because they don't produce anything, and they have to move on to some new thing to get other people to produce for them because you can't create through a negation process. Alf Haven doesn't make. Critical theory doesn't build. Critical theory doesn't even understand. It has no obligation to understand. It has only the obligation for Alfhaven der Kultur. It only has the obligation to tear down. So if you're in the position where you're looking at this woke nonsense or anything related to it, think twice. You're not going to do better in your organization. Harvard University burned through its branding in a couple of years, you don't, you're not going to do better. Coca-Cola ended up having to back off after they tried to say, be less white. Disney's starting to fold. Everything is big. Doesn't matter how big they are. The federal government of the United States is a laughing stock right now because they're trying to force this crap, both in the critical race theory direction and the trans direction. Are you out of your mind? Don't take it up. It will burn you to the ground so fast, and it will use you to advance its interests, to grift a little bit, to push its narrative a little bit further, and burn all of your, your earned, hard-earned cultural, social, and economic capital to the ground because it can't build. That's all it does. Constant negativity in pursuit of the magical emergence of the great or the good after all the negative is so-called destroyed is not going to create good. That's not how it works. Building the good takes actual work. You actually have to know what you're doing. You actually have to take some risks. You actually have to do some hard things. Good must be built up, and then it must be maintained and defended. And the dialectic cannot do this. It is a process of negating, not building. It can only destroy and spend its central article of faith, which is that hermetic alchemical belief that things will purify and perfect is ultimately wrong. It's bad theory. Bad theory put into practice makes bad results. So you need to understand that the goal of the dialectic is not, in fact, to create at all. So this is why you shouldn't adopt it. If you understand this as a religion, you understand. Its goal is to win. Its goal is to take over, to gain dominance. We heard that from them themselves. This is why the dialectical left is and always has been power-obsessed and seeks to seize the means of the idea, economic, cultural, linguistic, discursive, or whatever, production in society. Its objective is not understanding, it's operational success. Its goal is not to create or to build, it is to win, to seize power, and to foist as much of its agenda on the world as it can before it burns out. So to close, I'm going to do something quite controversial. I'm going to quote from a figure you're not allowed to drag into these kinds of things, named George Soros. In his 1992 book called The Alchemy of Finance, he writes the following. I think you'll see the Hegel in this. Or if you're a scholar of Horkheimer, you'll see the critical versus traditional theory thing in this. He writes, the scientific method seeks to understand things as they are, while alchemy seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. To put it another way, the primary objective of science is truth, that of alchemy, operational success. That's George Soros writing in a book about finance where he explained basically how he was able to crash and short the pound sterling. He didn't build the British economy. He damaged the British economy and grifted off of it. Same process. Alchemy is the method. His tool is called reflexivity. If you want to look up what that is, we're not going to get into that whole second side discussion. Um, but this is the fundamental difference then between Hegelian alchemism, alchemy and liberalism or even conservatism. And 
it's the same difference that you see in the neo-Marxist critical theorists that they put between traditional and critical theory. I could reread Soros' statement that way. The, 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 the traditional theory seeks to understand things as they are, while critical theory seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. To put it another way, the primary objective of traditional theory is truth, that of critical theory, operational success. We could probably say this in Hegelian language. For Stand seeks to understand things as they are, while for Nunft seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. To put it another way, the primary objective of Verstand is truth, that of Vernunft is operational success. This is the same thing that Marx dragged up then in the difference between Wissenschaft and Wissenschaft Lichter Socialism, Scientific Socialism, I can't say German, we're just going to, Socialismus, based on his critical philosophy. So critical philosophy becomes the thing here. We could put this in. Science seeks to understand things as they are, while critical philosophy seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. Hitherto, the philosophers have only sought to understand the world. The point is to change it. Put another way, the primary objective of critical philosophy is, or sorry, the primary objective of science is truth, that of critical philosophy, operational success. Again, it's the same thing as Hegel saw between Verstand and Vernunft, understanding and reason, which meant the application of a systematic philosophy to perfect the ideas of the world according to his own program and thought. So finally, at tremendous length, I think we're just closing up on four hours. I have discussed Hegel. As I told you I would, Hegel's relevance to the woke, my claim that the woke is ultimately a hermetic, meaning alchemical religion based in Hegelian philosophy, rooted in the dialectical process, proceeding by the, by the, the neo-Marxist objective of Aufheben der Kultur, I believe is now absolutely established. I think I know what I'm talking about when I say that. I don't think I'm making it up. I think we have a 200-year-long trajectory of this line of thought stretching back at least to the young Hegelians, if not Hegel himself. This project has progressed for 200 years. It has caused nothing but calamity everywhere it obtains power. It's attempting to obtain power through wokeness in the United States and throughout the West today. We should not let that happen. My practical advice is that people who identify themselves broadly as liberal and people who identify themselves as conservatives should find ways to put their differences aside, form an alliance, and start pushing out the Hegelian dialectical leftists. When I say push them out, I mean push them out of positions of power, push them out of positions of influence, which they can only abuse and waste. So there's my summary of how Hegel is the roots of a huge religious movement that has been going for 200 years. The woke are its most evangelistic and puritanical eruption so far in history. That's why I've compared them. Many of them are, in fact, in the, in the United States at least, coming from a tradition of lapsed Calvinism. So they filled in their Calvinist roots, uh, where puritanism comes out of, with this woke ideology as the new operating system. They've adopted a uh, Hegelian faith. If you are a Christian, I hope you are perfectly clear now on why anything in this kind of critical social justice, critical theory, critical race theory, etc. line of thought is heretical to the Christian faith as it's been traditionally or in reformed circles practiced. 
You do not believe in a God that is becoming, that is actualized through the activities of human beings. You believe in a God that is and is transcendent. You do not believe in a trinity where one part feeds into another and creates a spiral to a utopia at the end of the world. You believe in a God that created the world, three pieces are co-eternal and perfect, and that only he knows the hour of the eschaton. It is an absolute heresy to believe that you can somehow combine these. As a matter of fact, just for a last note for my Christian friends, it is a dialectical process, just like we've been talking about, to believe that you can. So what you would have is Christian faith as it is. Let's bring in something like critical race theory as an antithesis, a Hegelian faith, and then let's try to find a synthesis. But the synthesis of anything in a Hegelian thing is going to be Hegelian. So you've already been dragged into a heretical frame. So Christians need to absolutely repel this on theological grounds. Everybody else and Christians need to reject this on ethical grounds, on reasonable grounds, on evidentiary grounds, on just everyday good people common sense grounds, and on the sense of, of knowing that our society was premised on the fact that, again, just to bring this up again, it's so important, that rights, this is the Lockean frame, the liberal view, that rights are, in, are, are granted by the Creator. We are endowed by our Creator with inalienable rights. They are not privileges to be granted by a state that we are totally to, sub, to, to subvert ourselves to. Uh, and that's the Hegelian view. So we're going to reject statism, we're going to reject collectivism, and we're going to defend the values that have made everything work throughout the West for uh, just as long, or if not longer, than these two centuries of Hegelian religion.